Ladies and gentlemen of the Bizzlecast, welcome to the Crossing Streams podcast. Here we go. Oi oi streamers, welcome to Crossing Streams episode 12 presented by the Bizzlecast. We are going to get right into it. Matt, welcome back as always. Thanks. Hi everybody, welcome to episode 12 of Crossing Streams, aka The Gathering Stream, Mm. which is the 12th book in Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. Oh, you fucking asshole. I was just thinking about (laughs) Robert Jordan the other night. Oh man. I was. Uh, I had wondered if we'd burned through the whole Wheel of Time, which I have not read a word of any of the books. I just remember going to bookstores as a kid, looking at them and being like, every one of these looks so long. <laughs> I can't possibly get into these. But uh, thankfully, um, and what's funny is if you look at the audiobooks for them, every one of them is like 25 to 41 hours. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to break it down for you guys. and a yeah. half total hours of the 14 yeah. books. But yeah, The Gathering Storm was the first one after he died that he'd written a lot of, but mm-hmm. Brandon Sanderson had to finish it. I don't know if any of these books are good. They are well-regarded, um, but I can't do what Jesse did last week with the Rift War cycle. I can't recommend them or not. I've never read any of them, but uh, it was a obvious choice. Um, so and, we're going to yeah. call it The Gathering Stream. Okay, so uh, just a quick plug, people. Hopefully you're listening to this when we release it on... Um, uh, Monday, um, April, April 10th. 10th, 2017. Happy Pesach. Pesach yeah. Sameach Lekulam. Happy Passover to everyone. everyone. Um, and ha- have an easy fast if, if that's your thing. Um, fast on Passover. It just well, feels you know like what I mean. Because- yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's basically fasting with no bread. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I eat so much bread, it's difficult. <laughs> what it really is is, The the secret of Passover no one wants to talk about is when you haven't had dietary fiber for a week, the bowel movements towards the end become very, very painful. Yeah. You can still drink (laughs) coffee, though. Just make sure you don't use non-dairy creamer with gluten in it. It's true. Yeah, and you'll be okay. So I'm just going to do a quick couple plugs real quick, and I want to respond to Robert Jordan, and then we're going to jump right in. All right. Uh, First plug is, when you guys are listening to this, uh, I'm going to be releasing this week. The most important is my sort of official second anniversary retrospective, which is going to really be very little retrospecting uh, or retrospectiving uh, with my buddies Andreas and Smiley from Wesleyan, who Matt knows. And uh, we've been trying to do this podcast forever. And finally, two years in, we're going to do it. The Ruby Crew. Uh, the three musketeers, or really the three stooges, is, is more uh, more accurate. Uh, talking about stories from Wesleyan and our life in Brooklyn, living together right after college and so forth. I also recorded a commentary for the third Harry Potter movie, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which I have never read the Harry Potter books. I've only seen about half the movies, but my sister loved the books growing up. And uh, we, we, we would go to see some of the movies together as kind of a brother-sister thing. And I saw it partially because I knew it was like the first sort of adult Harry Potter movie. And because Alfonso Cuaron, who I loved from Itumama Tambien, who would go on to direct Children of Men and Gravity, which he won an Oscar for and all sorts 
lots of stuff, uh, was directing it, and it was an absolutely fabulous movie. Um, Matt, you can or don't have to weigh in on this, but on multiple rewatches and now doing the commentary, which I had an absolute blast, I would say that that movie is, again, me not being a Harry Potter guy, is my favorite fantasy movie easily after the Lord of the Rings movies, and I don't even know what's close. I mean, there's not a lot of fantasy movies out there, Um, but that would be my favorite non-Lord of the Rings fantasy movie, and I'm putting it way above the Hobbit movies. I'm talking about the original Lord of the Rings trilogies. It's a fantastic, fantastic movie. I was somewhat also inspired to go back because of Emma Watson and Beauty and the Beast. You know I love her. You know I love that movie. I talked about it already. Whatever. So look for that commentary. Um, And in terms of Robert Jordan, man, the first three books are really, really, really good. And if you just read the first three books, despite knowing that there's like 12, was that the last one? The 12th one? There's a total of 14, and then there's others. There's like supplemental stuff. Okay. Um, but there was basically supposed to be 12, and then the last one, it turned out, was like just too long, and so they had to divide it up into a total of kind of 14 main books. Yeah. So um, if you read the first and second and third, The Eye of the World, The Great Hunt, and The Dragon Reborn, it's totally a Messiah Dune story. Even while I was reading it, you know, he goes and finds desert people and he's got these tattoos which have magical powers and blah, 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 blah. It, but it's it's if you're cool with long fantasy books, it's really well written. If you just read those first three, you'll be great. But then I read The Shadow Rising, which was another thousand pages, number four, and The Fires of Heaven, number five, another thousand pages, and I stopped somewhere in the middle of book five, man, and I just gave up. But again, as I mentioned last week, this was around the time I was just sort of giving up on fantasy in general. And actually, mm-hmm. my bad experience with Jordan after going past the first three books led me back to five to catch me up and, and read that that last series of his which i really loved and then from that point and i talk about this really quick uh i talk about this during my harry potter commentary you know from the late 90s until the last few years when i discovered game of thrones i basically just came to the conclusion that tolkien was the first and the best and just kind of dismissed everything else at a hand um and i'm glad to see that that fantasy sort of back on top um how, how did you come to that by the way did you know robert jordan because it wouldn't seem like the kind of guy that you you would have read i definitely knew who have known who robert jordan was for a number of years as i said i remember being a kid going into the local barnes noble and seeing the giant wheel of time books and thinking those look like really long books um i mean i've read a couple of i've never read anything by him but i've read like the extended version of the stand by stephen king which Mm -hmm. is i think a thousand pages long i mean though it is you got to really be willing to invest in something to read something that long. Uh, but for this week, I was just, I basically Googled 12th book in the series and it brought me to the wheel of time page. And I thought we had already run out of wheel of time books. And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. I'm just going with this. Um, the bummer is the 11th book is called knife of dreams and knife of streams would have just been perfect, <laughs> but missed opportunity. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is, looking back on it, Jordan was sort of the bridge from the old-school fantasy writers to the new-school fantasy writers like George R. R. Martin, who do write thousand-page books. The difference was... It certainly seems like, sounds like that's about right. Well, I think the difference is, you know, George R. R. Martin has taken years between his thousand-page books, whereas Robert Jordan was trying to churn out thousand-page books per years. And as I have praised Robert, um, as Raymond uh, Feist for... Every single right. one of his books is about 320 pages max. 
And so yeah. he was dropping them every year, but they were really, you know, like cut to, you know, to, to be as minimalist as possible. And so the Robert Jordan books just got completely unwieldy and out of control. But he did you know, make the notion of, you know, reading huge long fantasy books in a modern context, you know, appealing and something that could appeal to people. The difference is Martin focuses mostly on character stuff and the world building sort of falls around it. Mm -hmm. Robert Jordan was excellent at world building, but not so good at character sketches. And Mm. so even me having seen the first sort of two and three quarters seasons of Game of Thrones and having read the original book, but that's it those characters are super memorable to me. Like I love the, the Lord of the Rings um, fantasy flight uh, card game, for example, because it's so thematic from the books. I know those characters so well from the early books, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they're just so well drawn. It's very hard for me to name even three characters from Robert Jordan, but he was kind of a trailblazer and uh, is very controversial because of the length of his book. So well done, sir. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yet another good one. We're going to have to keep reaching here. I was even looking at like who album, and stuff like that i was like all over the place trying to find something as a counterpoint for this week i got nothing so so that was pretty good so that's fine i didn't want to get up stage three uh two weeks in a row anyway <laughs> all right so let's jump right in this week um so last week we started um with sort of a pre-game with the bvs uh or so i keep saying bvs i'm sorry with the justice league trailer Right, which on you're forgiven for that mistake. By the way, they look yeah. identical to each other. They really do. They really. I mean, <laughs> we just call them Zack Snyder DC pieces of shit movies. Yeah. Um. But we're going to talk about soon about some of the maybe some positive signs coming out of DC. So, how should we pregame this week, sir? A- anything you want to talk about in terms of trailers, trends, news announcements, anything like that? Well, I have come up with – we have some news for Defenders and Jessica Jones casting mm. that we'll, we'll get into a little bit. But I had really been racking my brains for a good potential bet for who buys a BVS or who rents it so that we can do an audio <laughs> commentary for it. And I think I came up with a good option. Okay. Why don't we pick a score that we think oh, no. Wonder Woman will get on Rotten Tomatoes? This can be the critical score. It can be the user score. I don't know what the exact number is yet, but – if one of us picks the under and one of us picks the over and whoever loses has to rent it. So if we say that it's going to get a critical score of 80, if it gets 80 or over, Jesse wins. If it gets 79 or under, I win um, because I am certainly much more down on Wonder Woman than you are. So let you and you mean down as in literally not down, not like down, like I'm down with it, y'all. <laughs> yes. No, I, I am feeling down about it. <laughs> down about it, not down with it. I am uh, yeah. down with it. Um, here, here's my issue, is that I don't right. really trust Rotten Tomatoes, because okay. the scores seem to be getting increasingly polarizing. I mean, Beauty and the Beast at like a 71 or whatever is one of the more sort of reasonable middle-of-the-road scores that we've gotten in a while. I mean, there's no way, you know, John Wick at a 90 and Coast in the Shell at a 45 that John Wick, we don't have to get into it. There's no way that John Wick is twice the movie that Coast in the Shell is. It's just not the case. So another, I mean, a counter proposal would be the average score. Because remember, when you go to the website, not on your phone, but on the computer, it shows what the average rating is. Because Rotten Tomatoes, maybe we should explain this to people, man, because not everyone knows this, is that... It's basically a Robert, a Roger Ebert style thumbs up, thumbs down. So yes. they take every review, and if it's a two and a half out of four or better, 
or if it's a three out of five or better, depending on the rating system, which changes depending on the publication, then it's a thumbs up. And if it's below that, it's a thumbs down. So not only are these reviews subjective, but the ways that they're giving thumbs up or thumbs down are subjective. And you'll read some reviews that have a splatter icon that actually likes some things about these movies. And then right. you'll read some that have a fresh icon that, that dislike the movies, but still gave it a two and a half out of four or whatever, right? All so true. I, I'm not it's also worth noting to, that Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Warner Brothers. So. Yes. Well, yeah, but they give horrible scores to Suicide Squad. Um, which, by the way, uh, I, I I really played Oscar-winning yeah. Suicide Squad. Please let's uh, uh, yeah. so Matt, recognize Matt, the tragedy when Matt, it happens. Matt doesn't like my sardonic British friends over at White Culture, even though their lists are spectacular. Every single day, I'm seeing lists that you would just absolutely love. And they did a list about the four in, in seven minutes. They did 49 WTF moments from Suicide Squad, and they had a counter in the top left corner. And Jules, who's my favorite guy, who's maybe over the top and maybe the guy you would like the least, Jules goes through all of Suicide Squad, mostly chronologically, but also character by character, and does 49 what-the-fuck moments <laughs> in yeah, seven I- minutes. And it's unbelievable how screwed up that movie was. I mean, it was really, really, really horrible. And I've never seen it, but that was the most footage I'd ever seen in one place before. And I'm going, this is 20 movies. And <laughs> so if they try and do a quarter of that in Wonder Woman, then I might be on the wrong side of history here. So maybe I am trying to inch out of this a little bit. I, I just don't know if it's reflective of my expectations. Because remember, I liked Warcraft. I liked right. Ghost in the Shell. So but I that may just means like you the have movie. Asian sensibilities because everybody in China loved Warcraft. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was mostly made for them. Yeah. In fact, the legendary has teased that they're maybe going to do a sequel because they made like $300 million just in China, um, even though they made no money here in fact right. that movie outgrossed the great wall by a lot which you pointed out was like a major propaganda piece for china that's but, what it struck me as no and no, no you're right i followed up on views. that yeah you know yeah but but, but warcraft liked, made I mean, way that was more Jane money Yi Mu. that was yes. you know hero who's oh, yeah. a fantastic movie right but people have pointed out that whether you like or love or dislike or hate matt damon he understands that to be a superstar in 2017 you have to be a superstar all over the globe yeah, specifically, you have to be a superstar in China. In China, South Korea, and Japan. Uh, e- yeah. Not even Japan, because Japan has such a weird film market, but South Korea and China, you have to be. Um, so, I-, I will take you up on this in principle, but I don't want to agree to it on the podcast. Okay, that's fine. Because we, well, we, uh, we need to set, would it be a 59%? Would that be the, would that be the breaking point? Yeah, I'll take the under. So, well, what is it? I don't know. We can debate all the specifics later, but this is a, a mildly intriguing idea for you. It is a mildly intri- intriguing idea. I'm just wondering if Metacritic or something else might be a better judge. Okay, well, we can figure it out. But something yeah. along these lines, some kind of some kind of bet on the reaction Wonder Woman gets. Uh, I just think this determining who buys uh, Batman v Superman, and maybe this will lead into our main topics, which is I don't trust the critics on a movie like Wonder Woman because some people are going to be biased against it because they don't like the DCEU, which I could understand. Right. Some people are going to be like biased. Me. Right, like you, uh, and mostly <laughs> me. Um, and some people are going to be biased uh, for it because they like DC movies and they want them to be good, but they didn't like any of the Zack Snyder movies, and so they're going to give this a better-than-normal review because they want a good DC movie with a female okay. director, with a female lead character, right? 
Right. So this is going to be a very politicized review process, it seems to me. And that's what we're Oh, I think you're 100% right on that. Yeah. And in the same the way reason, Ghostbusters yeah. was. I mean, yeah. this is going to be another thing like Ghostbusters. I think it's going to probably be a better movie than Ghostbusters was, but you know, in the same way that Ghost in the Shell was is, you know, is the conversation over before the movie even comes out? Mhm. Yeah, and Ghost in the Shell is suffering the fact that the conversation was well over months ago. And the the fact that Scarlett Johansson and the directors and producers didn't see that coming is their fault, you know? Um, yeah. Or maybe they did see it coming and they thought the product was going to be good enough to overcome it. And to be honest, the product is good enough to theoretically overcome it if people would give it a chance. But I'm not at all surprised, nor do I hold it against any people who are offended or just upset about the whole situation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to totally go to bat to it. I do think it was a really, really, really good movie. Um, and I think it will be appreciated when, if and when we do move past these issues, five, ten years, whatever, and people look back on it, they're going to go, wow, that was actually a pretty good movie. You know what, though? I also think people sp- overspent money on Lucy, and that movie was way less cool than we all wanted it to be. And I think Scarlett Johansson as a killer sci-fi assassin ninja is maybe starting to get overexposed. And I don't think that's being reported on in the news maybe as much as it should be in regards to this. Probably true. Um, um, I never bothered with Lucy. I mean, it's not very the entire good. premise well, that guy. we only have ten percent access to our yeah. brains. That's all hooey. So, like, yeah. you lost me at the start. So, okay, let's still, let's just talk movies for a minute or two, and then we'll move to TV. So, okay, but you love the guy. You like Luke Besson, who directed Lucy, yes. who directed Fifth Element, who directed The Professional with Natalie Portman, which a lot of Hell people yeah. love. That great um, action movie and he's directing valerian which seems yep. like a teeny movie with avatar kind of stuff going on and mm-hmm. I- i'm kind of concerned now i don't like him nearly as much as you i do like the professional i didn't love lucy uh, fifth element sits with me better over time I-, I did not like it at the time it seemed really really campy when it first came out but it's it was self-referential in a way that i i wasn't aware of at the time and now i can appreciate um i also am not a big bruce willis fan and what's her face has not done much other than resident evil as far as i know mila jovovich yeah she hasn't done a lot of great work since then even though she was great in that movie also she's mostly just done sequels to that movie yeah also (laughs) uh, another reason for you to hate what culture in their 10 most offensive movie characters of all time they have uh chris tucker's character from fifth element as one of the most offensive and annoying characters i personally loved chris tucker and fifth element i think he's hysterical as ruby or whatever his name is yeah i think he's absolutely hysterical that i think he's never been better i think that was his best role well yeah i mean rush hour one is pretty good but Eh, yeah but um how are you feeling about valerian we haven't really talked about that we've got some huge science fiction stuff that do you mind talking about this for a couple a couple of minutes we've got the alien movie with ridley scott back on board we've got fucking you know the the valerian movie it seems i mean life was supposed to be really good but nobody's seeing it even though it's jake gyllenhaal and ryan reynolds in a horror sci-fi movie everyone says is really good no one's seen life Uh, the people i the reviews i've read have not been kind oh really okay well you're you're more in touch with this being a member of the press so you go ahead i mean my friends who are professional critics all didn't like it Mm. uh cbr comic book resources which is one of the sites i go to very often really thought it was terrible i mean once i started seeing previews for it Mm -hmm. it just looked like alien you know the the original movie it's just they bring a thing on the ship it turns out to be bad it starts hunting them and killing them and then they have to go find it and kill it with fire 
And as far as I can tell, everyone, every review has just said it's just Alien. And I'd rather just watch Alien, which is still the greatest science fiction horror movie ever and a really terrific just piece of filmmaking. I mean, it's a really artfully done, well done movie. Can you explain to me and to the audience what the fuck is up with the new Alien movie? Because it seems to be taking some stuff from Prometheus, which in right. my book was a horrible film. Prometheus was actually the film that put me over the top of, of not liking um, Furiosa. What's her name? Charlize Theron? Not liking Charlize Theron. I thought Idris Elba in his tiny role was the one cool part of that movie. Fastbender. I honestly forgot he was in that. He was the pilot <laughs> who dies at the end, of course. You got to kill the black right. pilot. Um, you have. Pretty much everybody dies. Pretty much everybody. You have Michael Fassbender, who's psychotic in every performance he's in. So. Right. But he's in the new one, too. Like, is there any real connection between the original series, Prometheus, and what's going on in Alien Covenant? So, as far as I can tell. It's supposed to be a bridge between Prometheus and the first Alien movie because people thought that the planet they land on in Prometheus is the planet they land on in Alien because Prometheus ends with that ship crashing and there's a body with a thing blowing out of its chest. And when they find the downed alien ship at the start of Alien, mm -hmm. it looks exactly like the scene where they you know, where the, the Prometheus movie ends, but it's since been revealed that that's a different planet altogether. So what the hell that, why we even bothered to watch that film and those people really remains co totally unclear. And my, what I'm getting the sense is that this movie is going to try to answer to some extent why Prometheus even mattered, what it had to do with anything. Um, and as far as I can tell, Fastbender is playing two different robots because he's a robot, and then, you know he's Wayland Yutani he, lines. Was, so was he? Was he two robots in, in Prometheus? I can't even remember. No, he's just one. But he's you know a model, and so he was kind of the prototype was David. Mm -hmm. And my guess is that this new David Fassbender is going to be a more perfected version of that same model. And I think David is going to make an appearance too, because I believe Nomi Rapace is in the film. So. There is going to be some continuation of that story of whatever the hell she's doing. Well, it looks like they mostly die early on, including Fassbender, because he's not. Well, in that's what happens much. in every Alien movie. Alien, yeah. most of the characters will die. Usually, one or two survive at most. So, this is the perfect example of a movie which completely changed filmmaking in the original Alien, and then has gotten progressively worse since then. I mean, well. A, 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 the most charitable interpretation of Aliens, the second Alien movie, was that they t took Alien and make it into a really gritty action movie. But if you're a critic of James Cameron, like myself, you can kind of look at it and say that it was really not that great and, and change what was great about the original movie. And then it kind of went downhill from there. I, I could be wrong. Well, it took... So it took a horror film and turned it into a big, dumb sci-fi action film. It turned it into Independence Day, you know, two-dimensional characters that you don't really care about, a lot of cursing, a lot of blowing things up. That you go from one really terrifying alien that's scary in the same way Jaws is scary because you don't see it, and it's the fear of the unknown, um, which is the metaphor of space, that space is the ultimate unknown frontier, and so... 
here is our fears about space crystallized as this perfect killing machine monster jaws the unknown of the deep same metaphor i would argue and then but now you've got hundreds of these aliens and they're just going around getting shot and blown up and it's not scary you know it's Sigourney Reaver and a giant robot punching the alien queen in the face. I mean, it's an entirely different approach to this property. It was very well executed. If I had to watch one or the other, I would much rather rewatch the original. Alien 3 had production problems. I think David Fincher was the director, but mm-hmm. either the script changed or, or that was just doomed from the start. And then... Alien Resurrection, Joss Whedon was involved with that, and there's actually some characters in it that could be seen as sort of proto-Firefly characters. Um, and it just, it, yeah. it's got good elements, but it doesn't really work. Right, that's the space uh, western thing we've talked about, which we'll get to in The Expanse coming up soon, yeah. Right, but, you know, it's about a small crew that docks at this station where they're trying to clone more aliens. And so there's a thug played by Ron Perlman who could very much be seen as Jane. I feel like the pilots are, you know, Wash and whoever the pilot is in Resurrection are comparable characters. Um, even the robot is played by, um, oh my God, uh, Spock's mom in in the Zach, Zach Quint- Quinto's mom. Um, oh, uh, well, Winona Ryder. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. You can almost see an all, like, she's synthetic, but you could see a Kaylee or River type characterization in that a little mm. bit so mm-hmm. resurrection has merit it it's not great but it's fine uh the avp movies the alien vs predator movies the less said about those the better and then prometheus was just sort of there um and the only reason i really liked it because it did have a lot a lot of that good creepy hr geiger art manifested in like the way the ship looks and the way the caverns look and i loved all that stuff i didn't really like anything all that much else about it. And I don't know what Kevin in is going to be exactly. I still can't tell if it's going to be good or not, but I mean, Ridley Scott turns 80 this year. And while he's in great shape and he killed it with the Martian a couple of years ago, I mean, yep. the Martian, whether you like the Martian or love the Martian, I happen to have loved that movie, but even if you just liked oh, it, you have to have appreciated how youthful the movie felt, you know, the energy, oh, sure. the diverse characters, you know, how upbeat and positive and can do the whole thing was, it was very unwittingly yeah. Scott, right? The whole thing. And now he is here doing like the sixth alien re- related movie at age 80. It's not really clear to me. I mean, he, he's, the productions that he's involved with, he's got about a, uh, a dozen and a half producer credits in, that are in pre or post production that aren't even out right now, including the new Blade Runner movie, including the mm-hmm. Murder on the Orient Express movie, which Kenneth Branagh is involved with, a bunch of other stuff you've heard of. He's involved with The Man of the High Castle. He's involved with Taboo. I mean, he's involved with all sorts of films, uh, you know, and, and TV properties over the course of, of his life. But what he's chosen to direct has been very specific. Um, and, and it's interesting that he's, he's coming back to it now. And so it'll be interesting to see the comparison between 80-year-old Ridley Scott doing the sixth Alien movie. Right. Um, and vo- so he did Prometheus, yeah. too. He directed yeah. it. He produced it. Right, which was the fifth, um, right? This would be the sixth. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, the July release of Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets by Luke Pazan. Yep. 
which has such supporting characters as Rihanna, John Goodman, Ethan Hawke. I like this cast. Clive Owen. Cool. Um, Herbie Hancock is in the film. I can't wait to see how Herbie Herbie Hancock is in the the film. The musician? The the jazz guy? Yep. Okay. He is in the film. But the main two characters are played by some young woman named Cara Delevingne and Dane DeHaan. These teeny characters, these teenager characters. Dane DeHaan I've heard of, but uh, Unless they're Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson, I'm not sure this is really going to work out, and I don't know who this appeals to. And by the way, my assessment that Ghost in the Shell should have been rated R, and that would have really helped it, has been echoed by a lot of things I've read online, by Box Office uh, Mojo and other people who have analyzed the lackluster Box Office, which is if you look at how well Logan and, and Deadpool have done, you know, I mean, especially because Ghost in the Shell has like exploding heads and blood oh, and stuff. It doesn't, you know, right. it, it, it's it's trying to get kids, but it's such an adult film. It's so dark. It's very artsy. Lucy was rated R, you know. I, I'm not sure why they didn't go for la- rated R. Um, do you have any expectations for Valerian? Because you're you're an Avatar supporter. And the, and the thing I just think about the most when I see it is, wow, this looks like a way cooler Avatar, basically, when I saw, see the trailers for it. Sure. I mean, yes, the visual aesthetic of it looks super cool. I really loved The Fifth Element when I saw it, and I've seen it on TV probably four or five times, and I still think it holds up really well. I think it's a very simple story, which prevents it from poking a lot of holes in it. I think it's extraordinarily funny, and I I desperately think we need more humor in these genre stuff. Um, I think the visual look of it is really cool. It's interesting to think of Luc Besson as somebody who kind of did the fifth element and then went in sort of different directions with this mm-hmm. filmmaking for a long time. Yep. And so the idea of coming back to this and what I think is clearly the spiritual successor to fifth element, I'm, I'm excited for this film. I haven't looked up a ton about it because I don't really want to spoil myself too much on it. And I'm, but I probably will see it when it comes out. Um, they, they and I think can. it's good to support stuff that seems to be based off of, an original idea as far sure. as i can tell unless it's based on a comic book or something but i uh okay it's a science fiction yeah as far as i can tell it's an okay it's based on a, a french a sci-fi book. series called valerian and Laura yeah it's Laura based on a comic Line. book yeah so cool but i mean i'm pretty sure nobody has ever heard of valerian and Loreline. yeah um yeah i mean it, it, it'll be really interesting to see and uh it's you know I don't think The Fifth Element did great in the theaters when it first came out, but it has become beyond a cult movie, like sort of a cult mainstream movie or whatever. Um, and Luke Bazan has been a writer on a lot of movies that he didn't direct, including the Transporter movies, mm-hmm. the Taken movies, the Colombiana movies with Zoe Saldana, which they're making another one of. Um, you know, he's sort of a stylized director, uh, you know, like Snyder. He's way more talented than Snyder and way more interesting, but he does have that stylization that he's kind of going for. For sure. But he doesn't lose track of the characters in the style. Like Snyder is all style and the style sucks. His characterizations are awful. You know, the fifth element, those are people and they feel like people that you're invested in. Like when, uh, Mila Jovovich gets shot, you feel bad. You even feel bad when the opera singer dies, even though she literally doesn't have a character. She's just there to sing 
and that's it. But it, there, for some reason, Luc Besson is able to balance the storytelling and the visuals with yeah. a core feeling, and that's what I really like about his stuff, or what I liked about that anyway. I just want to point out um, that uh, the female lead in Valerian, Cara Delavigne or whatever, yep. was the enchantress in Suicide Squad. And uh, oh, I'm going great. to I'm going to do a little bit of a hard turn here, man. Mm-hmm. I think we were planning on talking about Expanse first, but I okay. kind of want to jump into CW if that's okay right. with you, because we've we'll been sort of putting CW. it on the back back burner. Because we Han, by the way, for people was Harry Osborn in the Amazing Spider-Man too. Okay, not good, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm really going to blame him for a movie that was just kind of made for. We don't want to give Marvel access to Spider-Man yet, so we're going to put out another Spider-Man movie. So, The Enchantress in Arrow is yes. one of my favorite early season characters that I just don't understand why they've brought back. I know she's come back in the CW-verse, but I, I do not understand why they didn't bring The Enchantress back, if it is who I think it is, right? It was, it was like one of the early Arrow episodes. He tries to to bring her to the good side or whatever. Was she, or was she the, the daughter? The Enchantress? The Enchantress. Or was There's she, a Huntress. Oh, the Huntress. Maybe I'm mixing that up. Yeah, the Huntress is this. So who's she's the Enchantress? Like the daughter of a, I just blew. Enchantress is a uh, a witch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I was watching this video, guys, about you know what went wrong with Suicide Squad, and a lot of it circled around the Enchantress and how powerful she was, and how irrelevant it made the rest of the characters in Suicide Squad in some ways. Um, right. Uh, you know, uh, similarly to how Batman is kind of useless in, in Batman v Superman. Okay, so there's the Enchantress. There's the Huntress. So let's 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 pivot to DC here. N- nevertheless, which is sure. that? That's as good a transition as any. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been we ignoring uh, Arrow for a lot of reasons, yep. mostly because it's just not been that good. Yep. I've been watching bits and pieces of the episodes. I just haven't been able to get through it, and I actually haven't watched at all the last few weeks. And then okay. I was like. You know, leading up to tonight, I was like, all right, I have time to watch The Expanse and a couple other things. And I've been, you know, researching the Green Arrow comics because I love the premise of Arrow and I love the first like three seasons of Arrow and I wanted more. And there's some great stuff in the late 80s, The Longbow Hunters by Mike Grell, which led into, I think, like almost 10 years of Arrow comics from like the late 80s to the late 90s, of which Mike Grell was very involved with. The uh, Quiver miniseries by Kevin Smith in the early 2000s which again led to a reboot of Green Arrow after he had been killed, which is quite beloved by fans. There's some great Green Arrow stuff. People just accuse it, um, and we've even accused it of just being sort of a knockoff of Batman. And even the creators have acknowledged that that's how it started off. But it's gone in a little bit of a different direction, you know? Yeah. And, and the fact that Christian Bale is clearly a much better actor and, you know, Christopher Nolan, a much better director than what's going on with the Arrow series, you know, just by the nature of the beast. And yet I've, I've just always sort of identified with the Arrow character and been more interested than I ever have with Batman other than the animated series. Um, and the fact that Arrow has gotten bad over the last couple of seasons just makes me so sad because I really like it. 
And so I just want to ask you, man, and then we can talk maybe some specifics about the last couple episodes, because I do think this last episode before the mini break, the uh, the spring break or whatever that they're taking before the final run of the last few episodes was pretty good because you had the Russian storyline kind of tie in to what they've been teasing all season. As you pointed out, they could have gotten to this point by the mid-season break, and that's probably what they should have done. They could have cut out like six episodes. Um, and, uh, you know, people seem to have a mission again. They seem to, you know, have purpose. They seem to have energy as actors to what they're doing. And I just want to understand how this has devolved so much on television from what was really one of the best comic book properties on TV in the first few years, as we've talked about, to what's happening now where you don't know what's coming kind of week to week. Um, and do you think that sort of these last couple episodes that sort of be, uh, seem to be pointing up a little bit or are leading to- towards anything promising in the future? Or this is sort of the last gasp of the Arrow characters because Stephen Amell is really laying it all out there. I mean, this is some of the best acting I've seen from him in a while because he's so desperate. But in the end, they keep falling on the same cliches, which is he just needs to be convinced by one party or the other how to act, and then he just goes with it. Um, yeah, yeah, the uh, the scenes where they're just trying to be like, he's gotten in your head, we can't do this, we can help you. I feel like I've seen that so many times. Yeah. And so the last episode before the break begins with him wanting to hang up be- the cowl because in the previous episode where he'd been basically tortured for a full hour in what I thought was actually a pretty strong episode, yeah. Not surprisingly, because none of the B team shows up until the last two minutes. Um, funny how that works out. Uh, you know, he he realizes he kind of comes out and says, "I became the arrow because I just want to kill people. I like killing people, and this is the only way I can control it." And it's pretty good. This moment of explosion where he just finally lets it all out and almost looks kind of a little bit oddly like Tom Cruise in this sort of. When Tom Cruise gets like desperate and crazy, sure. I, I don't know why it made me think of that, but anywho, um, no, I can totally and see so that. then, yeah. so then this episode starts with him not wanting to do this anymore because of that last episode. If there had been a six-week break or a four-week break, so like that was the last episode before Christmas, and then this is the beginning, so that there was actually a good long period of time where he was so forlorn he wouldn't be the Arrow. I think the emotional weight would have had would have been much stronger here. I'm down for 30 minutes. Well, you shouldn't be down anymore. Okay, I'm not down anymore. Let's uh, let's go ahead and be the arrow again or something. So, I, it it works okay, but I think in the context of how little time he actually spent feeling this way, it doesn't hold up as well as maybe you think. Yeah, I. I... <sighs> You know, I mean, Stephen Amell is never going to be an amazing actor, you know, in like mainstream Hollywood films or whatever. But when you give him good material, he nails it. And it's clear that they are treading water. The fact that the producers admitted that Willa Holland is only contracted for like half the episodes of this season. And they even mentioned in this episode, man, you know, that, you know, Dig had like talked to Thea off screen. I mean, this is like, you know, when Gwyneth Paltrow breaks up with Robert Downey Jr. and Captain America Civil War off screen and we never see, you know, Gwyneth, you know, it's just Pepper Potts breaking up with him 
Now we're going to see this with Natalie Portman with Thor. We're never going to see, you know, Jane Foster breaking up with him. It's just going to be over. I mean, I feel like Thea, uh, played by Will Holland, she's just broken up with the series, and I can't blame her. Now, she has nothing on the docket right now, and she hasn't even done a whole lot of movies in the last few years. I'm questioning whether she wants to act, or at least in the near future, because she was a child model and a child star, and a lot of the, Could be she wants a break. I mean... But you'd think she would have her chance of at least some like trashy movies. So either she's maybe just, she doesn't want to do that. Well, that's I what mean. I'm saying. So either she's not getting offered the quality of roles that she wants outside of this series, or she's just like fuck it, or some combination of of the both. I mean, this kind of role probably requires. I, I mean, I'm positive it requires a ton of training outside of even when she's doing shooting. You know, she's got to learn fights choreography stuff she's got to learn sort of parkour stuff i mean the scenes of Stephen amell training you know the the amount he actually put himself through to become oliver queen it's impressive but you got to figure it's also exhausting and time consuming and i don't know that willa holland had to put herself through something that extreme but oh, i'm yeah. guessing this is not one of those jobs that you can just do for the six you know the three months you're filming and then you're done and so maybe she just doesn't want to be part of this production cycle anymore. Right. And so she'll take a break, take six months, take a year off, and then she'll find something else. I mean, she's young and talented and very attractive. I have no doubt there will be other offers of some sort for her. Um, but it does seem like she just kind of maybe wants a bit of a break. It does remind me, though, man, of the conversation we had recently um, on the Crossing Streams podcast about Iris, where I said, you know, oh, well, if you don't have anything to do with her, make her to a superhero. And you, you argued against that as sort of a cheap way out. And, and I kind of agree with, you know, I, I was sort of on your side by the time you finished that argument that it's just lazy writing and, you know, to fall back on that. That's like they didn't know what to do with Laurel, right? And so right. They, they, I mean, maybe they were already planning that because, you know, Laurel's character in the comics, for the most part, does become Black Canary, whatever. And they were planning, you know, with, with, with Thea Dearden, Mia Dearden, that whole connection with the comic books. Right. That she was going to fight. I just remember being so giddy at the beginning of season three with the whole Malcolm Merlin training thing and that she was going to yep. be a fighter. It felt like she was going to be able to be the supportive but complicated and somewhat disturbed younger sister that we had come to love in the first two series and be speedy you know it, like it seemed right. like they were doing the right thing with her and yet she just doesn't i don't think she ever embraced it i mean she, she had some great fight scenes but you could tell that they were using stunt doubles a lot and it's not that she couldn't do it but you just could tell with oliver and even with um um, I'm, I'm blanking. Who the guy who plays Diggle? Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank as yeah, well. I mean, you so we'll t- move on. Yeah, <laughs> but you can tell with the main characters who fight that they really do fight a lot of the time, especially Stephen Amell, who we know is like a martial arts dude. You know, is doing a lot of the fighting. It was very clear. The same way you can tell with Scarlett Johansson. You know, David Ramsey. By David the way, Ramsey. Yes, David Ramsey. You can like you can tell with Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow that her stunt doubles often in there. You know, with that with the hair swinging around to block her face, so you can't see that it's not her or whatever. Right. I, I wonder if, in a weird way, she enjoyed being not a superhero. And then when it came to having to do those chores, as you were kind of pointing out, that it became less attractive to her. I, I, I don't know. 
um, I, you know, she has not given a lot of interviews recently about kind of what her experience has been. She, you know, we're not, if she is still part of this program in a few months when San Diego Comic-Con comes out, then we will probably, I'm almost positive she's, if she's still there, she'll be at that because I'm pretty sure at this point you're contractually obligated to go to San Diego Comic-Con. And so hopefully then we'll get some idea of kind of what her experience has been like. Um, Cause somebody's going to want to talk to her, even if, you know, she's not the hall H panel leader or whatever. Um, I think it's called hall H mm-hmm. anyway. So we'll have to see in a few months. I think the dust will settle a little bit on the season and then we'll have a better answer about what Willa Holland's deal is for now. It's just kind of speculation. So I'm, I'm about to drop something that's going to, going to blow you away. Okay. Are you ready for this? Diggity. Yep. I miss Laurel. <laughs> well, she's going to be a regular next week, year, so there you go. I miss Laurel. I, I, I honestly, I miss Katie Cassidy. I, I never really appreciated her until she was gone. And <laughs> you know, I, I, I hate to agree with all the comic book haters out there. Matt and I talked beforehand. I don't want to bring this onto the podcast. There's a lot of stupid, sexist, chauvinistic, insecure piece of shit comic book you know white male hetero fans out there that don't want anything but white male hetero characters they don't want empowered female characters they want to empower gay characters they don't want empowered you know minority characters and they can go fuck themselves but you know one of them did point out that you know oliver always ends up with laurel in the comics even way more or dinah whatever you want to call her even way more than Bruce um, Bruce Wayne ends up with anybody, and as much yeah. of a playboy, and this is true, and as much yeah, of they a marry play- and have a son. Yeah, I, I mean in yeah. the comics, in, in a lot Connor of storylines too. Green Arrow. Yeah, but not just in a single storyline. It happens over and over again. Bruce Wayne is constant, even though Oliver Queen in the comics is actually portrayed in some ways as liking his playboy status as more than Bruce Wayne, who's supposedly just using it as right. a uh you know a cover uh, which is interesting because if you look at the christian bale performance and the Stephen amell performance they actually flip it where christian bale does seem to enjoy being bruce wayne at times in the batman movies at least in the early parts um and, and it still feels like movies. a facade though it does feel like a facade but, Ol- but oliver queen immediately makes a calculation in the arrow tv series that you know he's gonna act like a drunk frat boy just to, to you know even get himself arrested you know and put on right, trial but he or hasn't whatever. been a drunk yeah. frat boy in about four seasons i mean he really he, gets away from that attitude yeah. after season two right but what i'm saying is in the comp in the early green arrow comics he does seem to enjoy from what i understand the 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 playboy status more than the arrow that we've come to know in the tv series um you know and yet he always ends up with laurel lance or dino lance or whatever the hell you want to call her black canary and and bruce wayne never ends up with anyone right i mean they literally created the rachel dawes character for the dark knight movies and they have two different women play Rachel Dawes. And as much as I love Maggie Gyllenhaal, no one really pulled it off, you know? Like a love, a true love interest for Batman. It just never happens, right? Right. Uh, and so, in a weird way, you know, maybe he should have just ended up with Laurel because their one tryst in the first season or the second season, whatever it is, is, is pretty hot. You know, season one at the end of season one, right before the fight with Merlin. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then, um, 
what's his face dies. Um, Tommy. Tommy Merlin dies. And you know, I've said it, before, I thought yeah. Laurel's character was strongest when she still had that community canary law firm and before she became black canary i thought that was when her place on the show made the most sense where her purpose and her own agenda for her own life was most clearly laid out Mm -hmm. and then it kind of got moved farther and farther away in odd directions for the character so the felicity haters out there the felicity smoke haters think that it's a forced relationship and to be honest, it is a forced relationship. The problem with the Felicity haters out there is that they blame the actress and the character and not the writing, when you should be blaming the bad writing, because they do have good chemistry when it's written well. But it would And they ha- think it's all on her characterization, yes. and they don't see that Oliver has also been written pretty poorly. I mean, most of Oliver's lines this season have been lousy. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, these, these people refer to her as sort of a manipulative liar and paint yeah, Oliver as some sort of, you know, saint. Just doing his best. And yeah. he's in an un, un, he, there's no correct direction for him to go. And she's chewing him out for situations that aren't his fault. I, none of that stuff really does anything but, for me. But the bottom line is if they had had Laurel and Oliver get together for at least a season or two following Tommy Merlin's death and Malcolm Merlin's apparent death after season one, it would right. have helped a lot of things. But beyond that, they should have gotten rid of the flashbacks after season two or three at the latest. The fact that they keep falling back on the formula that worked for them in season one and their inability to evolve. I mean, I think Supergirl, having seen only one or two episodes of season one and most of season two of Supergirl, they seem to have evolved more between season one and two than Arrow has evolved at all in five seasons. I would probably say so. I mean, certainly the jump from one season one to two has been the most dramatic of any of the superhero shows. Um, you know, Arrow did progressively get better. I didn't hate season two. I don't really even dislike it. I, I thought the kind of the effort to start, you know, season one was all about character and season two was about building the world of Arrow and starting to set up the Flash because Barry Allen shows up in season two. And it's clear that they had this other goal. And season two is when they felt comfortable starting to do it. And given that that did lead to the Flash and Supergirl and Legends and all this other stuff, I don't, I'm not going to hold it against them for wanting to pursue that goal and starting to execute it. Um, and then season three was the best. I mean, season three had the best episodes of the whole show. It was where Will Holland became a character. It had, you know, the League of Assassins is still probably the best, one of the best bad guys. Um, yeah. So, you know, that show did get, I would argue, progressively better for three seasons. And then I don't know exactly what happened with season four and five. I mean, I know what went wrong with each season, but I don't know why it went wrong. Um, I don't know if the writing staff changed or if they changed priorities or what, but it was on an upward trajectory for three years. Yeah, it really was. They should have just kept running for uh, running with what was working for them. Um, I'm not really sure what happened there. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I think maybe some of it was season three. You know, I said that season two was when they started to build the world of the CW verse. And then season three is when it really started to expand even further. We had, 
you know, that was the season that White Canary came back to life. That was the season that introduced us to the Arrow, I mean, to the Atom. And so the same problem that plagued season five of just too many characters and too many lame ones, uh, maybe that was also what started to bog down Arrow season four. Mm-hmm. And I think the rising popularity of Supergirl and Legends of Tomorrow and the questions that have been starting to you know, be asked about Arrow and Flash kind of point to the greater problem. I mean, um, uh, what culture did their you know, 10 most shocking deaths of 2016? And Lettered Snart was like number two or three. Yeah. Um, and people love those characters in the way you've talked about legends on this show. Um, you know, has it made it a very, very intriguing property. Uh, Brandon Routh was just on the Nerdist recently. Mm-hmm. Um, a great interview. I'm about halfway through it. Um, you know, I have to I, check that out. Yeah. I know you and I don't always love Chris Hardwick, but it's, it's I've a- listened to a couple of Nerdist interviews. I listened yeah. to Keanu Reeves. Yes. I started Jordan Peele and never finished it. Yeah. Yeah. He, he he's not a bad interviewer. I mean, he's he's best in that context. When you see him in like ads and talk shows and stuff, it's right. it's less appealing. But he does have great you know people that he interviews. So yeah, uh, it, it's it's hard to ignore. Um, but it, it seems like the playfulness of those two shows, Supergirl and Legends, Flash and Arrow, don't seem to be learning from. Do you think they feel like they are? living in a universe creatively that they need to keep perpetuating and not totally change because it's not like the green arrow has never had adventures as matt and i talked about off mic before the show there's a very successful run where the uh green arrow and the uh green lantern went cross country together in like what the 60s or 70s and yeah 60s early 70s they basically just go on a road trip they don't fly they I think they like buy a beat up four by four or like a, a Jeep or something. And then they just go traveling. Cause green arrow tells Hal Jordan, you live out in space. You have no idea what life is actually like mm-hmm. for Americans. Um, they've kind of gotten away from the social justice aspect yes. of arrow yep. of the green arrow character on the show. They yep. sort of, they had some of that in season one, but now arrow is just fighting people who want to fight the arrow. And I mm-hmm. think that's, one of the problems, um, you know, the the socially conscious libertarian ultra liberal that Green Arrow is in the comics, that characterization they've really gotten away from. I'm not sure he, that was ever really a core part of Stephen Amell's portrayal, but that's one area where they kind of failed the original characterization, mm-hmm. and that's okay. But I think clearly that was a deliberate choice of theirs is to not go quite so hardcore down this path. I mean, I don't want to keep beating a dead horse here about killing people on Arrow, but it's certainly more interesting from a moral ambiguity standpoint when he does kill people sometimes and isn't tormented by it or being tormented by his friends and colleagues and being guilted into making decisions. I, I miss. Well, it's certainly more interesting than seeing it happen over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, at least with Artemis, she said, screw this and left. Right. Um, you know, if Curtis and Wild Dog have this big problem with him killing, then just fucking leave. Yeah. 
but he Nobody's never stopping them. He I mean, never Brent, seems to make ahead. a decision on his own at this point. It's always because no. someone talks him down or talks him up. You know, yeah. it's always because you know, be like, well, because Diggle said this, and the mayor said this, yeah. and Captain Lance said that, and blah 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 blah. It's always someone else convincing him to do it. You know, yeah. And what I loved about Adama in Battlestar was. For example, you know, early on, I guess it was early season two, when Candace McClure, who played D, convinces him to put right. the family back together again and put his ego aside and reunite the fleet and, and embrace the president and his son in Starbuck and get everything back going again, which basically leads it to the end of the series at that point. They're all on the same page for the most part. Even then, you know, like he doesn't say why he changes his mind. He just decides on it, you know, because it's a whole combination of factors. It's like when Mary McDonald in the in the uh, miniseries says, "We need to make babies. We need to run away, and we need to make more babies. <laughs> like that's how we're going to save the human race." And mm-hmm. then he decides to not fight the Cylons get with the the fleet and everyone jump away and they're going to run away. And Ty says, can I ask what your, what changed your mind? And Adama just goes, you can ask, you know, and he doesn't say it. Now we as an audience know that Mary McDonnell as president Roslin changed his mind along with some of the other characters is seeing, you know, seeing D with Billy and all sorts of, you know, there's lots of stuff going on. But the fact that Oliver is constantly like an exposition diarrhea about who convinced him to say what, when, and how is just really upsetting and frustrating. And I wish he just told them all to fuck off and just did his thing. It would be much more interesting. You know what the best part of the Dark Knight movies are, in my opinion, was the end of the the Dark Knight. The Dark Knight was the best. The end of the Dark Knight's the best. The sacrifice? Yeah, that, that you know, he takes, he takes the fall, um, f- you know, for the death of Harvey Dent and the whole lie behind Harvey Dent. And, you know, when Gary Oldman, as Commissioner Gordon says, you know, he, he, he you know, he's, he's the Dark Knight. And, and, you know, and they say, well, why? He's like, because we need him to be, right? That right. he's taken the fall for the whole thing, even though he's the hero, because that's right. what the city needs. And that's what, le- that's what makes the Dark Knight Rises work for me, is that Bane exploits that whole lie against the commissioner and against the city, you know? I mean, Dark Knight Rises doesn't work at all without that lie being exposed by Bane. And, you know, and that would True. be really interesting to me with the green arrow to be the sort of sacrificial lamb who yes enjoys killing bad guys at a certain level but also uh, recognizes that someone has to do it and if he has to be the guy for the greater good does this make sense i don't know it does i see the thing how to put this if they do that if they have the green arrow ultimately sacrifice himself they have to actually make it a sacrifice. It has right. to have a permanent change. What frustrated me about Dark Knight Rises is that for all of the sacrifice that Batman does, you know, where he's able to convince people on boats to not blow up prisoners out of, you know, just because it's it's the wrong thing to do. Yep. In the next movie, there are scenes where mobs break into old people's homes. They're rich yes. old people, but they're old people, and they beat them to death. And there's no yep. reckoning ever for what people do during the year or however long a period of time it is when Bane has taken over Gotham. Yep. And so ultimately, this whole sacrifice felt – to me, Dark Knight Rises betrayed it and hollowed it out. And mm-hmm. so if Green Arrow is going to sacrifice himself – it has to be a sacrifice. I, you know, I don't want to see them kill him, 
But maybe he does hang up the cowl. I mean, for good. You know, we've talked about what do you do with this CW verse when some characters want to leave. You know, how do you have a CW verse without the Flash or Arrow when they're the most important characters? Well, without killing them, maybe one of them quits forever. And somebody else maybe becomes the next Green Arrow because there have been more than one of those and there's been more than one Flash. So maybe that's a way to actually have these people sacrifice something permanently. You know, it, the choice doesn't matter if the outcome is ultimately irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, the rule of the mob in The Dark Knight Rises is very disturbing. I mean, I don't think it betrays everything that Batman in the series has stood for the way you do, although I, I totally get what you're saying. I do think it is an interesting thing that in The Dark Knight, the cops and the politicians are corrupt, but right. in The Dark Knight Rises, the cops are trying to save the people from themselves, which is a very conservative kind of message. Yeah, uh, And actually, in my commentary with, with Aaron, uh, we did both Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises commentary. In The Dark Knight, we also c- not criticized it, but had a bit of a critique of that also being a a conservative movie um a little bit in terms of you know going above the law to achieve a higher end and ruining people's privacy you know batman's whole algorithm or whatever that he had you know to get into everyone's cell phones and and so forth i mean i i don't think christopher nolan is a conservative guy in real life but he is certainly uh you know broaching some of these subjects I think the sort of the stand-in... It's kind of an authoritarian. Yeah, it Or his like movies it. have yeah. an authoritarian, yep. you know, feel to them. Like, yep. you know, his solution to the Dark Knight is let's co-opt everybody's cell phone in the city yeah. for our own private use. Right. And, yeah, they do question is this morally right or not. It's still how they ultimately solve the problem. So even if it's just one use... It's a little disturbing, mm-hmm. and in a way that the movie doesn't go far enough to recognize. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the fact that the Dark Knight Rises that you have you know the police force all like brawling hand to hand, gangs of New York style with Bane's people. And yeah, it, it, it doesn't quite work. I think they try and sell it, you know, and that's why you get an actress like Anne Hathaway to play Selena Kyle, who you think is going to be just a typical Catwoman character, but the fact that she turns from a thief to a hero of the city, trying to save people from themselves, including MK from. <laughs> Yep, <laughs> from into the Badlands, which we'll get to. If you know, she but just the- let him die, maybe we'd have had a better sidekick <laughs> for Into the Badlands. That was definitely his best role ever. Was being held briefly <laughs> by by Anne Hathaway, but yeah, I mean her conversion to the good side, which is forced. You know, she doesn't even want to even help Batman. It, it, it is very cynical, and the fact that Batman would just leave the city after that, you know, and go live off in Italy in secret with yeah, his that lover. ending, yeah. As a comics fan, it annoyed me just because there have been enough like stories that are set in the future or a future. And in every one of them, Batman stops being Batman because he dies or because he gets so old, he physically can't do it, which is how Batman beyond the cartoon. That's that premise. That's Dark Knight Returns is him just aging out of being Batman and sort of being forced through regulation to quit. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back and he's old and he can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. So the idea that Batman would just go off and live in Italy with his hot girlfriend while he's still young and healthy. No, that's a fantasy of how Batman's story would end. Batman's story will never end that way. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, what, what's made me like, really like um, and close to love Dark Knight Rises over the years is purely from a cinematic standpoint. Right. And, and Tom Hardy, Anne Hathaway, Marion Cotard. I just think the supporting cast in Dark Knight Rises is so good. But, you know, yeah, everything from the ending to his whole climbing in the pit, you know, people have pointed out, you know, when he falls the first time trying to climb out of the pit, his back would have broken in 5,000 yeah. shards. You know, I mean, it's so, it's so unrealistic. Yeah, recover pretty quickly from a spinal yeah. transection or whatever the hell is wrong with him. Yeah. But I, I think, think it's Bane just, was the yeah. wrong, sorry, I think Bane was the wrong choice. I think trying to shoehorn in Nightfall, which was the comic series where yes. Bane breaks Batman's back. I don't think they needed it. And I'm not quite sure what it accomplished. And it, it's the biggest plot hole in the whole movie of is Bane's goal to kill Batman or to blow up Gotham? Because mm-hmm. why you would leave a guy in a hole and then rig- jury rig a nuclear bomb to go off in eight months mm-hmm. is stupid if your ultimate goal is to destroy the city and make its destruction the symbol of how America needs to change, mm-hmm. which is what Ra's al Ghul's plan was, which is what Bane says is, I am here to finish what Ra's al Ghul started. If you're going to blow up Gotham, just fucking blow up Gotham. Yeah. It was a pretty fascistic movie. But I think what I've come to appreciate with Nolan over the years is I'm going to love some of his movies. I'm going to hate some of his movies. Some of them, like The Dark Knight, I'm going to love and then end up just kind of liking with reservations. Some of them, like Dark Knight Rises, I'm going to hate and then end up liking with some reservations. Some of them, like Inception, I'm just going to despise. (laughs) <laughs> but then some of them, like The Prestige, is going to go down as one of my favorite movies. And some of them are like Interstellar, which most people don't love that movie, but I actually think is pretty good. You know what will be interesting, man? This is a World War II Earth. movie that they've been really setting up. Um, if he screws yeah, up Dunkirk, the World War II, yeah, with Cillian Murphy and Tom Hardy, who he's worked with a million times, yep. if he can't make that movie work with that cast and that budget, then we'll have to really... I don't know. Do you agree that that we'll have to really kind of re, um, uh, kind of rethink what we our impression of of him is? I don't know. There, every time a director comes because out, that's a with real world new, movie. I'm sorry, yeah, because exactly. that's a real world story. Like, yeah, this happens when directors make a lot of films and then they make a bad one. This happened with Brian Singer after Apocalypse, where people who liked days of future past and i'm probably guilty of this too in fact i I think i am guilty of this then go back because apocalypse is bad and say well maybe i'm over evaluating how good days of future past is or isn't and then they you know it's like it's it's as if we can't accept that somebody who is good sometimes is also not good sometimes i mean so i I, I don't know i I don't want to i I don't want to accuse you on this point even though we've talked about this but i actually researched the sense the last time we've talked about this subject they reshot like 20 to 30 percent of apocalypse like brian singer was not happy with it his own movie which doesn't which doesn't recuse him of being guilty of putting out a, a lame x-men movie but he was right. even aware of it and, and, and by the way dark knight rises also had tons of reshoots mad max had tons of reshoots but in mad max's cases they they changed the tone of the movie and made it way better 
than what it originally was. The action scenes, the end with Furiosa, like none of that, like some of the, you know, was really, was in the original cut of Mad Max. Miller had to go to the studio and ask to reshoot that stuff. And in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't work. Right. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. And I feel like the reshoots were all done to get closer to the vision that he had for that movie. Whereas I, I don't know what was reshot with Apocalypse, but I wonder if it was not about getting closer to his vision or it may have just been closer to getting close to like the studio's vision. Like Suicide Squad very famously has two cuts. There's the David Ayer cut that he liked that nobody else liked. And then basically the people who cut the trailer recut the movie as a trailer, which is why most of the scenes don't actually start and stop. They're just montages like a movie trailer. And of course he was pissed off about it. I mean, here's the difference. There, there's there's a couple of differences. One, Apocalypse was not a good movie, but it still felt like a movie. A movie, yeah. I yeah. Suicide Squad, from what I've seen, feels like a thousand movies trying to put into one. I mean, the Joker wasn't even in it initially. I mean, all the Jared Leto stuff, but he was promised even more than what happened. So no one ended up satisfied. Like right. that was a late addition, but he was promised to be a major part. He ended up just being a creepy seducer. Like five minutes, pointless. Yeah. He could apparently have cut his whole. Th- I mean, yeah. I've never seen Suicide Squad, and I, unless somebody gives me a super compelling reason, listeners, if you have a super compelling reason, yeah. tweet it at me at Matt Coisman yeah. CCT. But I'm not. If, I'm not saying you should see Apocalypse. But when you watch Apocalypse, you're going, "This is a Brian Singer movie that's just not right. very good." But it's a movie. Sure. Yeah. So. But yeah, to get back to your original question, yes. if Dunkirk flops or it's not as good as, I don't know, what people expect it to be, I don't have, I don't know much about, I'm not like a big war buff, so I don't know anything about what the Battle of Dunkirk was, so I, I don't know if I'll even see it, but if it turns out to be bad, yeah, people are going to go back and question whether or not everything he's ever done was actually as good as it was said to have been when it came out. Mm-hmm. I think that's a lousy thing to do, but it is something that definitely happens. By the way, the uh, that classic Inception uh, scene where, is it Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Cillian Murphy, where he's in the, the, that long room and it's spinning um, around. I can't remember. Some of those scenes were actually practical, and they made those really? sets. Yes, cool. Yes, Inception is actually more practical and I less think I CGI didn't know that. than you would think. Um, fuck it, buddy. We're talking about movies a little bit this week. Let's just embrace <laughs> it. So, why is it? I know you don't love Memento, but you do like Prestige. So, let's focus on Prestige. What? And I think Memento yeah. is a great movie that just didn't grab me. I mean, everybody you I know... You can appreciate lo- how great it is, like Donnie Darko, right? Like, you can appreciate that sure. it's a, a, a cinematic achievement. So why those movies, with very few special effects, are so effective? Well, I think it's because they don't rely on special effects. When you mm-hmm. have practical effects, even if it's models, the sound it sounds real. It feels real. Like... We're talking about Mad Max, so I'm going to bring Mad Max in because I watched it on TV a week ago, and I still loved it. Uh, when There's a scene where the guys on bikes are trying to attack yes. the tanker with oh, all yeah. of the brides and Furiosa and Mad yep. Max. And there's a scene where they shoot one of the guys on his bike, and his bike with him in it slams into the side of the tanker, which has got spikes all along the side. Mm-hmm. And you see it's probably just a mannequin, but something – 
crashes into the side of the tank at what certainly feels like full speed with no sound at, well, actually probably a little bit of sound amplification because that movie definitely edits the sound to make it sound a lot more like loud and explosive. But when he just crashes in at full speed, no slow motion, no weird camera shit, Mm -hmm. it feels like you just watch somebody crash into the side of a tanker and die. You know, when you see a, the one of their like dune buggies fall into a pit and just flip up and down and crash head first into the yeah. pit you think oh well yeah that guy is dead everybody in there is now grievously injured because there aren't all these stupid fake bells and whistles mm-hmm. uh you know clearly sent, k- telling sending you the message obviously this isn't real you know the cgi scenes there's the very artful but obviously not realistic one where they go inside the 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 sand twister thing that's all mm-hmm. cgi mm-hmm. not my favorite moment in the movie and then at the end when the whole thing crashes and the steering wheel comes flying out in 3d obviously that's cgi too i think george miller liked to use cgi for moments that were supposed to be artistic or symbolic sure. but most of the time he's lighting things on fire and yep. crashing things into other things mm-hmm. at full speed without a lot of crap and it it makes it feel like you're actually watching something happen instead of watching something somebody programmed to happen. If you, if you guys out there and you know, I give bed backs a hard time, but I I've been wanting to rewatch it and I can guarantee you, my friend, I'm going to like it more on rewatches because the number (laughs) one thing I dislike about that movie is blank. Uh, Charlie's Theron, isn't yes. it? I despise Charlie's ah, Theron. I've been paying attention. <laughs> I despise Charlie's Theron. If it had been almost any female actress of her age that I like, you know, I mean, it really could have been anyone. I just really don't like her. Um, and you know what? She does a good job in that movie of being a badass, but when she's forced to emote, I just don't buy it. I just don't. She's just very cold to me. She's cold in that movie. She's cold in Prometheus. But yes, you're right. Yeah, but you know, but she has some moments where she's crying almost, or crying. You know, I mean, it's been oh, a while sure since I've seen it. Yeah, and, and I think Tom Hardy's the, the the far superior actor, and this isn't a sexist thing. I just don't like her in particular. Um, I think I'm going to like that a lot more. I also think I saw that at a point in my life where I just didn't want that level of negativity or just darkness. I think if I saw it now, between Logan, Deadpool, and the two John Wick movies in the last year, <laughs> you know, as well as becoming a bigger Quentin Tarantino fan and so forth, I think right. uh, it would go down a lot easier. But if you search like... You know, uh, if if you guys go to YouTube and search, you know, CGI and Mad Max, yes, you'll find what Matt just described, but you'll also mostly find just slight enhancements of really practical effects. Yeah. I mean, it's night and day difference from something like Batman v Superman, which is all green screen crap. Um, Yeah. Now, they're different movies in a lot of ways, but there is just something for me so much more visually satisfying in seeing actual things burning and blowing up and crashing and shooting that to me, it just, it feels more real. A few years ago, I was, a friend of mine was reviewing, he was like trying to watch every film in the American Film Institute's top 100. And so one of the films, he would do one a week for two years. Mm -hmm. One of the ones we watched that I was there for was the original King Kong. Uh, and it's all, all claymation, and it's all practical effects. And does it look a little bit cheesy? 
yeah, sure. I mean, it was made in the 20s or the 30s. But because of the amount of practical care the filmmaker put in to getting the most out of what he had, it still works. It's, you know, when the King Kong is fighting a dinosaur and people are falling like hundreds of feet off cliffs, even though they're just little like models and shit, it works. You know, it, it the craft put into a movie like that feels so much more satisfying to me than the... I don't even want to call it craft put into something like BVS or the Star Wars prequels um, or, you know, any of these films that are just CGI everywhere. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, that, that to loop it around, that's that's really the tragedy of Arrow is that it was like a totally practical show with almost no CGI. You know, they had they had it all going for them in this day and age. It's, right. just, it's completely wasted. Um, now the flash has always been heavily cgi reliant and it hasn't hurt it and maybe that's also just because obviously a person who runs at super speed that doesn't exist so it's an inherently fantastical concept so you have to augment the reality with a lot of cgi absolutely absolutely and uh yeah, I mean, I came across this doing my commentary for uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third Harry Potter movie by Alfonso Cuaron, which is right. some of the CGI, like the, the uh, griffin-type uh, flying creature uh, back in 2004, even with their huge budget, you know, it doesn't look amazing, but it doesn't take you out of the film for two seconds because you're so invested in the characters, you know what I mean, and mm-hmm. this and this is of course what has you know brought me into the CW shows and, and in general uh, opened my eyes. I just don't give a fuck about. It. I mean, if, <laughs> it's, if it's if it's done poorly, if you have a budget and it's done poorly because of lack of care, you know, and, and, and lack of you know special treatment, then I'll be mm-hmm. annoyed. But if it's just because of you know just because of the nature of the beast like it, yep. it, and the characters and the actors are doing what they're supposed to do then i'm okay with it you know i really don't care i mean that's the thing there's a couple of moments in the lord of the rings which like classically you know fans make fun of like when uh in the return of the king when they're the fighting the giant battle of Minas Tirith against the elephants right. and, and Legolas climbs up the elephant yeah. and kills all the guys and he shoots the elephant and he kind of surfs down the elephant's trunk yep. Yep. Um, and, and the elephant that still only counts as one still only counts as one and that's but that's the thing I didn't even care about you know some shoddiness there because that exchange was so hilarious in the spirit of the books even at the time and I look back now I still don't care and, and the thing is it it's to the point where if I love a property, it affects my brain to the point where certain special effects look more real than they would normally look. Because that's, you know, because I'm so invested in the characters, it's almost like my brain is forcing, you know, the physical part of my brain, if that makes sense, to not care about those sorts of things. Because I watched the Legolas thing. I mean, dude, one of my earliest podcasts after I released my commentaries for the extended editions of all the Lord of the Rings movies, that was like when I was getting the Bizzlecast going. That was like how I, I jumped into the deep end, was doing, you know, and I went backwards, by the way. I started with Return of the King and then Two Towers and then Fellowship of the Ring. I went backwards. Mm-hmm. We did the extended editions, full commentary, 
And then my buddy Adam Tuck, who's a huge Tolkien nerd, on with me. We argued for like 10 minutes about that whole thing. I'm like, it doesn't look that bad. He's like, dude, objectively, it looks terrible. I'm like, I know, but I love the character moment so much. Yeah, like, I just don't care. Yeah, the characters will get you past anything. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's a of super course, thing. Lego yeah. Le- yeah, of course, Legoless can climb up arrows he shoots into a, a elephant and kill everybody and chop off the elephant canopy and do all that we've already seen him slide down a shield in a castle and stab people with an arrow rip the arrow out of the head wound and then shoot another guy i mean you know the legend the lead excuse me the lord of the rings movies are really really good and part of the reason they're really good is that all the main characters are real characters that you're invested in you know you like Gandalf and Frodo and Sam and Legolas and Aragorn and Gimli and even like Boromir in the end. I mean, I teared up when he finally sacrifices himself at the end of Fellowship of the Rings. Sean Bean? Forget about it. That was amazing. I mean, nobody can die like Sean Bean. Sean Bean, I hope his like resume skills include (laughs) dying on camera because he's really fucking good at it. I remember when he was cast for that movie. I could already see it in my mind's eye. I was like, this is the perfect casting. Oh my God. Well, when he showed up in The Martian, I started wondering... Is like a computer screen going to blow up in his face or something? Like, how are they going to kill him in this movie? He does get fired, although hilariously during fired. the credits, he's playing golf with his his grandson or whatever. In fact, it's right. Scotland. Yeah. Um. So, all right, man. All right, we'll move on to a few more shows here. Uh, by the way, I've, I have uh, some bad news about Ezra Miller. Um. <laughs> Which is that he's, he's Jewish. He's Jewish, oh, and he describes himself Christ. as quote Jewish and spiritual unquote. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, he was in Perks of a Wallflower, by the way, which was a really good movie with Emma Watson that I saw back in 2012. I, I didn't even know it was him until I researched it. Uh, he has some chops. Um, he's I, also part of the sure. Fantastic Beasts a series, but. Nevertheless, <laughs> um, oh, why don't we bridge to a uh, to a little Marvel comparison here, ma'am? Okay, which is that Marvel and Netflix released a fifteen second clip, which was clearly filmed to be a fifteen second clip of the four of them in an elevator and some high rise in yep. Manhattan after they've clearly just laid an, down an ass beating on someone. Or they're going into descending into the pit they discover yeah. in Daredevil season two. Right. Um, most of the evidence is that the elevator is going down. So well, right. Well, I thought maybe they went up and beat up a CEO and his whole bodyguards or whatever. But who knows? So you see the four of them, and uh, Daredevil's looking actually kind of relaxed. Luke Cage being Luke Cage. You see, uh, you know, Finn Jones as, as Danny Rand kind of leaning back tiredly against the back of the elevator, which I kind of liked. And you have Jessica Jones looking like she's ready to just kick someone else's ass. And she's right. looking around like a feral animal. And she looks up and sees a camera in the elevator and just jumps up and punches the shit out of it. It, it is like a sensation on the internet. I mean, Netflix ha- literally, I'm sorry, IMDb literally has it as a video on its front page. You know, normally the videos on the front page of IMDb are, are reserved for like regular like trailers, like new releases. 
But you have the All Eyes on Me trailer number three, which is the Tupac movie, which I think is going to be terrible, but we'll say. You have I Am Heath Ledger, uh, you know, some sort of Heath Ledger thing, which also they're looks... All, they're making a biopic about... Oh, yes. Is yeah. it a documentary or is somebody else no, playing Heath no, Ledger? No, no, no. Someone's playing him. It's... um. Okay, this strikes me as oh, no, a no, very no, 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 no. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. All right, it's a documentary. It's a documentary. Feature length. Okay, I can live I'm with wrong. that. I yes. still think it's kind of too soon. But a biopic about a guy who died four years ago is really yes. lame. But let me let me just read the list of go ahead people who are playing themselves in this movie: Naomi Watts, Ben Mendelsohn, Jimon Hansu, Emil Hirsch, Ang Lee, and a bunch of other famous actors and actresses. This is like a real, I think, tribute to him. And I've actually been researching recently, man, about about the whole Heath Ledger thing. And you know, do you know that he created this journal of all these like psychotic literary and and filmic, you know, characters, pictures and writings that he would carry around with him on set to like get him going or whatever. Hmm. And on the very last page over some pictures, he wrote like bye bye or something like that. It's really creepy. It's really screwed up. <sighs> but, um, anyway, <laughs> on a happier note, and speaking of Sigourney Weaver, this was a, a tie I was trying to make from the very beginning, but we finally got here. So <laughs> they've got what they've called the elevator teaser, which is all over the place. And of course, they gave the one piece of cool, funny action to Jessica Jones, who I still mm-hmm. think is going to be the leader of this whole situation. We'll say. So she punches the camera out, and that's it. And you know, and the defenders is now a thing. And the hilarious thing is, you know, we've been talking about the Twitter feeds for these various characters, and Jessica Jones. Twitter release when this video came out was like an eye roll emoji and like I guess this is a thing now or something like that like they were making fun of the fact that it was a thing like I just love it I don't know who's behind these people doing these you know doing these Twitter posts or whatever it's spectacular we know that uh, I'm okay I'm just gonna try and not lose it here (laughs) we know that Jessica Jones season 2 is being shot right now we know that they just cast a uh, Academy Award and Go- Golden Globe nominated actress named Janet McTeer, English actress, or I should say UK actress. Maybe she's Irish. I think she's going to be JJ's mom. I have no evidence of this, but Kristen Ritter tweeted it immediately when it happens, and Kristen Ritter doesn't tweet that much. I follow her tweet. They're filming in New York, 101st Street, in front of the same apartment building that they filmed for season one. Cool. We know that Ika Dartville is going to be there. We know that Rachel mm-hmm. Taylor, obviously, is going to be there. Yep. Will Traval is going to be some horrible bad guy on his medications or whatever in this one. I think his character is called Nuke in the comics. I believe he's called Nuke. Uh, Rachel Taylor as Trish Walker. Everyone is pretty convinced, has been convinced since the first season came out, even more so now, that she's going to be Hellcat. We're going to see her with her, her Krav Maga skills <laughs> fighting, you know. By the way, I love the fact that Trish Walker is learning Krav Maga. Uh, yeah. which has become kind of a thing now, the Israeli martial arts, but it's like legit, you know? So mm-hmm. Trisha Walker and Jessica fighting side by side. 
I mean, I love Supergirl, but this could really take the female empowerment and comic book properties to the next level. Uh, I'm going to pass it to you before I lose my mind here because I'm just so excited <laughs> this is happening right now. And they're going to release it pretty close to the beginning of next year. I, like, I think they're going to release The Defenders, and then they're going to release The Punisher, and I think they're going to release JJ early 2018. So we're getting Defenders in August, yes. uh, and yeah, I, usually there's a spring release, a March release is the next one. But maybe they will bump it up and like do Jessica Jones in January or February and then try to do something else for, I, I don't know, May or June. I would rather see Jessica Jones season two next and then Punisher. I don't know which direction no, they'll Punisher, go. No, Punisher, they're saying 2017 already. I don't think JJ. Oh, really? Out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They released the, uh, it's uh, interesting the, to yeah. think then when are they going to release it because they're going to have Defenders in August, yep. Stranger Things on Halloween, which obviously not exactly the same, but... They don't want anything on the air that is going to keep people away from Stranger Things. Like Netflix, I am positive, is going to go all in on Stranger Things Season 2. That's not Um, Because that's been the biggest thing that Netflix has ever had in terms of, like, widespread, you know, water cooler talk, you know, television. Um, The Punisher is going to be straight up rated R violence. Probably. Yeah. But people, I am positive people who are watching Stranger Things would also watch Punisher. So if Punisher debuts, it's either going to be, I would guess, end of September, which feels a little bit too soon after Defenders, or they're going to wait till Christmas to drop it. Can I I Um, give you a comparison just because I was researching this recently for my commentary? Sure. So in 2001, there were four major franchises in Hollywood released. I'm going to give you the two crappy ones first. Fast and the Furious. Right. Ocean's Eleven. And first I, Ocean's Eleven's all right. It's fine, but, you know, as a franchise. In 2011, early November, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. 2001, you mean? 2001, sorry. So, Harry okay. Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Right. Second week in December, 2001... You should know this. Uh, was that Fellowship or was that Fellowship of the Ring, December 9th, uh, or, or was it December 19th, 2001? And within a month of each other, Harry Potter and Fellowship of the Ring both made like $900 million apiece. Can't be a coincidence so close to 9-11 that those two fantasy escapist films, as good as they were, I mean, I, I would argue the first Fellowship, that the Fellowship is way better than the first Harry Potter movie. The, um, first, Harry po- the first two are lousy. I they're mean, really it got bad good kids with movies. three, yeah. and then starting with about four was yeah. all right, five was Eh, six yeah. and seven are good. Yeah. I never loved any of the movies, no. but I mean, three is the best. One of the by best. Far. One and two yeah. are terrible. Yeah. And they're three the ones the best by far. Yeah. I think one and two were both done by Chris Columbus. Yep. I want to say, yep. um, Home and Alone. then they changed to Quaron for the third. And that's when yep. they started to get better. Um, Alfonso Quaron, who has had drug problems and who's, uh, you know, but is a very known good to be a dark guy and, but a great filmmaker. And by the way, uh, Guillermo del Toro took his name out of the ring for that third movie, which I wanted to ask you about earlier. And uh, Cuaron, who, who is a little bit of a dark guy, who would then go on to, instead of making a, uh, another Harry Potter movie, make Children of Men, which is mm-hmm. both one of the most prescient and one of the most relevant movies to ever be made in the yeah, 21st I loved, century. 
I love Children of Men. And then Gravity, which I did not love, but was nah. uh, was a landmark in terms of uh, cinematography and led to the cinematographer who would then make the next two um, Inaritu movies, uh, Birdman and then The Revenant, <laughs> would win three years in a row for those three movies. So great just you know, filmmaking from that standpoint. Quadon says the two years he worked on the Harry Potter movie were the two sweetest years of his life. Um, and he had never even read the books. He almost turned it down because he thought it was a stupid kid's project. And Guillermo del Toro <laughs> specifically turned it down. And I make a comment, man. I know we're going all over the place here, but I do want to get your opinion on this. I make a comment in my commentary because you're not going to, you won't listen to it, which is, it, <laughs> as much as I respect Guillermo del Toro, he's constantly getting either kicked off or taking himself off of projects that really could benefit from him. Like he was supposed to make the Hobbit movies, which would right. have been way cooler than Peter Jackson making it. Pan's Labyrinth, although a ar- stunning artistic achievement, was way darker and more nihilistic than even it needed to be. Um, Pacific Rim you know, with some different casting and execution choices could have been a really landmark Hollywood action movie. And it's, I don't even understand why it's getting a sequel. Do you agree with me that he's one of those guys that may never reach his full potential or am I missing something? Guillermo del Toro, that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would actually probably on some level agree with that because it just, he has like his thing and he wants to go do his thing. And if he can't do his thing, he, walks away he's reminds me of quentin tarantino in that sense but basically quentin tarantino has earned the right to to just basically cash a blank check every time you know which is whatever the next thing he wants to do is people will be a hundred percent on board probably because one it's going to win oscars for whichever studio funds it because you know even the hateful eight won a couple of oscars the inglorious bastards did extremely well Django unchained did extremely well you know his movies his movies look good for the studios that put them out. Whereas Guillermo del Toro, the stuff he makes is so weird and so out there that studios are always never quite sure whether or not they want to take the chance on it or not. I mean, if you look at the movies he's made, you know, devil's backbone, which I believe is a ghost story Mm -hmm. set in, I think Spain, you know, and it's, it's a Spanish language film blade Two. Hellboy oh. and then Hellboy Two, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy which too. is that's my favorite. Yeah, man. we've talked about. I mean, they're good, but the energy for that franchise just ran out. Like Hellboy went the way of Sin City, and then they tried to make a sequel to Sin City ten years later, and it was bad, and nobody saw it because nobody cared about Sin City anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think finally Guillermo del Toro, like a year ago, said, "I'm never making Hellboy Three. Get over it." And everyone was like, "Oh no, how could you?" and I was kind of like, who really thought he was ever going to do this? I mean, it was nine years ago now. Um, But Crimson Peak is this weird gothic ghost love story. And Mm -hmm. Pacific Rim is about monsters punching robots. And The Shape of Water, which is his next movie coming out later this year, is about a a woman who falls in love with a fish man played by the same guy who played Abe Sapien. Yeah, but... What are the most memorable, for me, moments of Pacific Rim? It's Idris Elba and Charlie Day. I mean, those two guys were amazing in that movie for completely different reasons. It's the character stuff. And the main I character sucked. I like Taco Mori a lot. I, 
I hate the I, main characters. I, I, eh, I, I was fine with them because clearly the movie was not about characters. It was just people who were climbing into robot suits so they could punch monsters. I, you know, this anime, some anime has great, great, wonderful characters that are really deep and complex, but there is also a whole strain of it that is just people climbing inside robots to punch other sure. things, other robots or monsters or yeah. demons or aliens or some combination of those four. Mm-hmm. And Pacific Rim was clearly inspired by that. I mean, well, it was just the people who make Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla possible. And I was okay with that because right. that's all I wanted and I got it. So I, I walked away from that movie supremely satisfied. Yeah, but here's the difference. From Reservoir Dogs through Kill Bill 2, Tarantino was like, I'm going to make the fucking movies I want and fuck you because yep. people love my fucking movies and I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to be excessive and I'm going to be over the top and I don't give a shit. Yep. And for whatever reason, inspired by the Holocaust in World War II, he made what I consider to be a landmark film with Inglorious Bastards, I think. I think Inglorious Bastards is a spectacular movie. And then he followed up with what I consider even maybe even a more spectacular movie in Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. And those movies deserve to win or get nominated for Academy Awards. And I was never a Tarantino guy. My friends loved fucking Pulp Fiction growing up. I was like, okay, this is cool. But we watched it over and over again. And I was the one guy that was like, why are we watching this movie over and over again? <laughs> it's, it's very stylized. I get that it's artistic. But when I saw Inglorious Bastards in the theater, I was made so uncomfortable. I didn't like it really when I saw it in the theater. But I was fascinated by it. And I rewatched it as soon as it came out on tv and i was hypnotized and i've seen glorious bastards probably four or five times yeah me too and i I mean i know it's the nazi fantasy thing which is funny because it definitely is i mean the jewish wish fulfillment of it that even tarantino was aware of because he said like if you're jewish and you take your girlfriend to this movie and don't get laid afterwards you're pathetic he said something almost literally that but but that scene where the spies are sitting in the bar with the German soldiers. Oh yeah. And you're just waiting for something to happen. Right. With Fassbender and everybody. I mean, that probably Mm -hmm. takes 15 minutes, that whole scene. And then the shootout goes down. The thing is, by the time the theater's burning and they kill Hitler at the end, I, I didn't even care in terms of the, um, wish fulfillment part at that point. I was so in with the filmmaking. Yeah, <laughs> and so when Django Unchained came out, I was like, I, I didn't view it as a Tarantino film. When I was going into it, I was like, this is going to be a great, great movie that Tarantino made, and I loved it. So I'm hoping Guillermo del Toro can do do such a thing. Yeah, I call him. You know, he's obsessed with being very genre y. You know, like yeah. I'm Guillermo del Toro. I'm doing genre stuff, and I'm not going to make yeah. compromises for anybody. You know, sometimes you have to make a few compromises. And I'm not saying that the, the Tarantino had to make compromises to make those more recent movies work. And The Hateful Eight also was very celebrated. I haven't seen it yet. I know a lot of people who like it. My dad really liked it. And he, that's the thing. My dad really didn't like Tarantino back in the day, but he loves Inglorious, loves Django, and really liked Hateful Eight. You know, he started making movies, like real films. You know what I right. mean? And uh, guys like, you know, like Del Toro, like if he just wants to keep being in his little niche that's fine but i don't want to hear any bitching from him you know about his his success or or lack thereof 
I'm not sure he bitches as much as you think he does, but I mean, no, I'm not saying he does. I'm just saying I don't want to hear it. Yeah, I mean, I I think they're both very, very good filmmakers. I I think history is going to be on the side of Tarantino in most respects was a much more successful filmmaker. And you can quantify that in any number of ways. Del Toro did his thing and not a lot of people wanted to come along for the ride because the ride he wanted to go on was a weird one, you know, and that ultimately it's easier to get behind Tarantino's concepts because they are at their core, simple and pretty classic. You have a samurai movie or a wuxia film, you know, which is all that kill bill is. You have a Western, you have a couple of different Westerns because he has said in Glorious Bastards is basically a Western in set in World War II, and Django Unchained is a Western set in the antebellum Southeast. Uh, and in a lot of ways, The Hateful Eight is just reservoir dogs in a Western setting. Sure. Um, you know, it's just people sitting around talking, and then a lot of them wind up dead. But I, I've said, you know, and again, this being a white Jewish boy from the upper middle class in the Northeast of the United States in the 21st century. I think Django Unchained is a more effective movie about slavery than 12 Years a Slave, even though 12 Years a Slave is quote-unquote more accurate and based on a true story from a straight-up filmmaking and spreading you know it around for people to see it perspective. I think Django Unchained is going to go down as a more influential in terms of the wider culture uh, uh, <sighs> Uh, comment on on slavery and maybe quentin tarantino intended that and maybe not and maybe i'm reading too much into it but it certainly sticks with me more 12 years of slave just felt like torture porn the entire time which is weird because you think that's something you'd accused tarantino of back in the day yeah i mean i don't think tarantino ever is torture porny i, I think not. he's he fetishizes the violence oh my god i mean yeah. that's almost undeniable with all the blood the you know what he does with blood is nobody else does that and it's obviously a fetish thing there is the foot thing with him that we don't need to get into but you know but when he does when he does the mandingo fighting for example he's dead serious about it you know yeah and that's what's changed about tarantino i mean it's not just irreverence and you know over the top whatever like he's dead serious when he addresses those issues and the portrayal the writing and portrayal by leonardo dicaprio which is my favorite leo role by far i think uh and Django unchained just from strict performance standpoint is really a affecting and the fact you know from solomon northrop's perspective and 12 years a slave everyone's a victim and everyone's just being victimized and that's fine because that's what slavery was but the fact that he's just like a tourist who's suffering with them for a brief period of time until he's you know quote-unquote freed well 12 years is not a brief period of time hang on no no i'm talking about i'm talking about the i'm sorry i'm talking about the viewer's experience of it it's you know it's a two and a half hour right. you know yeah. we're, we're, we're going on a slavery tour and we're going to see lupita get you know whipped for you know five straight minutes and then hung and you know and so forth right um i was just also disturbed by the fact that that was the movie that was so celebrated among black movies and that lupita would win the award as talented as she is for just getting tortured for 20 straight minutes in the movie um, well that's a whole other problem yeah. of what do women who win those kind of awards, what kinds Especially of roles win them, you know, that, and that's, 
like a Halle lot of Berry. people criticize that yeah. yeah like holly berry and uh, monsters ball yeah right same kind of thing so okay man all right well whew, we're getting into dark territory here so <laughs> let's move on to a couple shows and then we'll wrap up we have a couple shows that wrapped up their seasons um yes. so before we get to uh walking dead which i am interested to hear about and legends of tomorrow which i'm really interested to hear about and by the way bizzlecast listeners i apologize i know i promised i was gonna watch the final episode of legends but instead of doing what i should have done which was get off the last podcast and immediately set my dvr to tape it i did not do that and so i am going to be with you and hearing matt's description of how great it was and i'll, I'll try and find it on on tv at some point um can we just talk expanse really quickly and then we'll wrap up with those uh, end of the sure. end of the season show so I, I think you and i agree that you know post thomas jane's death has not been as good as it was before um at least in season two um going into caliban's war which is the second book even though they introduced yep. it mid second season right also but, the name of the series finale which is in two weeks is caliban's war yeah just like leviathan wakes i believe was the final uh name of the uh season one that's quite possible finale yeah i, will I believe check it was that, final but... wakes yeah but um we've been wondering what ganymede yeah, was that's right yeah we've been wondering what ganymede was and we've been wondering what's going to happen with gunny and you and I have both been pushing really hard for Gunny and Agdashlu as Christian to form a relationship. And goddamn, I thought it was great in this episode. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it, that's the thing. I mean, I, the biggest problem with the last couple episodes is I went more Earth and less, you know, less with the normal crew because of how great their chemistry is, I think. Go ahead, buddy. Yeah, I, I mean... I I still don't bel- see any way that she that Gunny winds up with the expand with the Rosinanti crew. I just yeah, I'm gonna be for one because that. the Rosinanti yeah. crew I think is breaking. You know, this episode ends with Dominic Tipper's character Naomi and Wes Chatham's character Amos wanting to take another ship to help evacuate Ganymede Station, and yeah, so. Like I'm wondering, are Dominique Tipper and Wes Chatham leaving the show, or no? They, is they, no, don't the other guys end up staying by necessity at the? Well, hold on, let's save the well, end. Well, they're let, going let, on a hunt, and I, I don't let's know. Save the so, end. let's save the end. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So anyway, but I really do like this idea of Bobby finally seeing Christian as somebody who is like maybe the only person on earth or Mars who doesn't want all out war to further corporate interests basically. And so, you know, to see her go rogue, which I thought would happen, but to be something positive of defecting and finally being able to see through her own, to be blunt racism uh, is one well, well executed acting, not we got nationalism, but they're kind of compared, you know, earthers and dusters certainly earthers the way they talk about people from mars is incredibly racist um including this idea of calling them dusters you know but very well sold scene by frankie adams when she flips out and beats up her boss it's awesome after all the manipulation Uh, for like three episodes she just punches him in the fucking face i was like cheering i was so pumped yeah i mean you can only hold a person like that back for so long and so it'll be interesting to see if she winds up helping Christian in some kind of military action, which I, I don't know how much we're going to get of that in the last two weeks. Um, but, you know, season one, 
the narrative picked up a lot of speed in the final few episodes and season two, like Jesse said, has not quite regained the magic of the first bunch of episodes. The, you know, the pre aero station crashing on Venus episodes, but the last couple have started to get a little bit faster, a little more interesting. And at least this one ended with me wanting to see the next episode. And the previous two, I was kind of like, eh, that's fine. I'll catch it when I can. But now I actually, you know, when Steven straight, the camera closes on his face and he's going, yeah. we're on, going on a hunt. Yeah. I was like, yeah, they're going on a hunt. And yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. You know, that was, that's up there with let us hunt some orcs as yeah. best final lines. They shoot right up on Steven Strait's face. I love it. It's great. Yeah. I love when they pull the guns on the guys ripping the cables. Yeah. And they're like, we need this to get off the station. And Steven Strait just like points his gun at the door. He's like, then get going. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, He is becoming progressively. Yeah. He's growing on me a lot. And, And the fact that he explains himself as to why he let, you know, Amos, you know, yeah. Do his thing earlier. He's like, look. We don't have a choice here. We've got we've got the end of the universe coming. We need to, you know, not not be restrained um, in doing it. But that's an interesting path, the way that this, you know, early in this season, Amos describes him as like the most righteous man in the gal- in the solar system. And to see this mission of his take him and twist him down this very dark path, that's maybe the right path, but, you know... What he keeps saying is if we can't destroy this proto-molecule, so many people are going to die. You know, whole planets could be wiped out. Mm -hmm. Even if he's right, it is very dark to see what he is willing to do to pursue this mission. Yeah, I think the biggest problem they have is that we still don't know that much about these main characters. Yeah. It's all sold through performance. I keep going back to your... your, um, uh, explanation as to why Battlestar was so brilliant and it's set up by destroying the whole world or, or all of their worlds. And so basically them starting from zero at the beginning of the series and getting to know them, right? I mean, exactly. the, the, the fourth and fifth episodes of the first season of Battlestar is just, you know, a Starbuck a stranded on a planet. And even though the Adamas are mad at her about Zack, they're willing to risk the entire human race to, you know, to to ca- to get her back and to rescue right. her. I mean, they literally spent a two episode arc right at the beginning of the first season, making that happen, and all the character development that that does. I still don't feel like I know these characters. Like, it's almost getting to the point where I feel like I know Frankie Adams' characters better than the the other characters. You know, I mean, we're hearing about her family and her, you know, right. the heritage and where she's coming from. Like, we don't know anything about the Rosinanti crew. Um, and I, have you seen all of season one or just caught bits? No, and I've seen everything. I've seen it all. Okay. But, so there's yeah. some season one explanation of what Kamal's background is, what, uh, the captains, um, yeah, but there's explanation. Yeah. There's explanation. There's exposition, but there's like also just really buying it and embracing it. You know what yes. I mean? Agreed. I mean, Starbuck feels like Starbuck by the end of the miniseries. Like, you don't even have to get into oh, the for first sure. season, you know? Starbuck feels like Starbuck by I, yeah, the end seconds. of the first yeah. part. I, yeah. mean, I mean, they're playing cards, and then she punches Ty in the face and gets sent to the brig. And she's smoking a yeah. cigar. Smoking it's like, cigar. that's Starbuck. Yeah. That's yeah. all of Starbuck in one scene. Yeah. Uh, Naomi in particular. Naomi and um, 
uh, and Stephen Strait's character, uh, character Holden, I would really Holden, like yeah. to learn more about them. I'm okay with Amos being a little mysterious. And by the way, I like that Cass Edvar as Kamal is starting to lose his mind talking to the computer. I mean, he was an exposition machine the entire episode. But he sells it through performance. Yeah. I, I I didn't love him last week, but I really liked him this week. And the Hoss and the cowboy stuff you know, this idea that he's actually kind of crazy or he's going crazy, I, I kind of like that. Actually. And it's so self-referential because when, when he comes to rescue them, he goes, we've come to rescue you. And <laughs> Stephen Strait's like, we? And he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that. I, I came to rescue you. But then there's also the part where Amos gets shot again and he goes, why am I the one that always gets shot? <laughs> and then doesn't Cass also say, aren't, why are you always the guy who gets shot? Yeah, he goes, why are you the only guy that gets shot? Yeah. <laughs> The show can be quite funny yes, when it, when it wants to be. I, when they're planning the attack on Ganymede, the the botanist guy's like, Do your, are your plans always this like up to chance? And Amos is like, yeah, this is pretty average for us. Yeah. Um, I did like how you knew the Asian was going to misfire his gun, but they did it like 90 seconds after he got the gun. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they didn't wait for it. That guy's not a great actor. I'm not going to lie, but it's not. Nah, yeah. But at least we're starting to get a sense of we're getting answers about what yeah. this all was, why they've been on this station for so goddamn long. Right. Um, so and that wasn't so I his like daughter, that. Right. That was not his daughter. That's what they established. The one that they burn up. Yeah. No, but I'm starting to think that his daughter might be the monster. They're about to go hunting. And they'll have to like kill him to kill her or something like that. I mean, clearly these hybrid yeah creatures are the children that they were experimenting on and feeding the proto molecule to and then they grow into these sold these proto molecule soldiers i mean look and this will be my final combat and let you talk about these last couple shows the reason i wanted to talk about arrow and i went back and watched some episodes was that i love the expanse and artistically i love what they're doing I don't truly feel invested in the characters the way I feel in terms of Oliver or Thea or Felicity or Dig. You know, I I don't, it it hasn't been that many episodes, hasn't been that long. It's not a character drama in that same way. It's all about the plot serving the greater story. And that's great. It's great for the show. But, you know, people out there, when I criticize Arrow, act like I feel betrayed by it. It's because I do love those main characters, even Laurel, you know? And I just don't feel like they're always getting their due with the writing. I feel like the Expanse writing is picking up the whole production, whereas with Arrow and maybe Flash to a certain degree, it's pulling it down. And, you know, that's such a bummer, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't even watch the Flash that much, but I'm still rooting for all those characters. I feel like I know them, yeah. And and Sci-Fi Network, this is just something you have to accept about their their style of showmaking is they are so much more about the plot than the characters. I mean, Battlestar is an obvious exception where they really work to flesh those guys out. Stargate Universe and women. Stargate Universe. You know, uh, what? Stargate Universe. Okay, maybe that. But all the stuff on TV right now that I watch now, granted I don't watch the magicians, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but 12 monkeys, so much more about plot than character. Helix, so much more about plot than character defiance, uh, dark matter, all of it, all of it is plot more than character. And I think that's just the style of show sci-fi network seems to want to make right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
And maybe it's what the audience wants because Stargate Universe, maybe it was what you said it was, but it only lasted two years and most people don't think highly of it. That's not true. That's not true. Look at user reviews. My younger brother has watched every episode of every Stargate show and he really doesn't like Stargate Universe. Well, if you like the other Stargate shows, then you're not going to like Stargate Universe because it's not pulpy, oh, well, okay. it's not exciting, it's not fast-moving, it's not. It's very slow, and it's very much an ensemble character show. It's fan-fucking-tastic, and I have okay. no... I have no connection to the larger Stargate universe. I've tried SG-1, too corny. I've tried Atlantis, don't care. Stargate universe I watched because they were billing it as like the Battlestar of the Stargate universe. And honestly, it does some things even better than Battlestar because they're on the other side of the fucking universe. And so they really can do entire arcs of episodes where it's just character stuff. And it's a great fucking cast. I'm going to send you the DVDs. It's really a spectacular (laughs) science fiction show. And the more I watch other science fiction shows it makes me appreciate how great do i have to was. know a lot about the stargate nothing. mythology with the ghoul and the jaffa and they don't talk about that at all all right great they, they barely mean aliens yeah if you send it to me then i promise i'll give it a shot yeah i mean uh, the, the, the clip i sent you or where you've got the, the band brand, oh yeah 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 brand new playing that song with elise levesque the yeah, actress I know, I know what you're talking getting about. abducted by the alien that's like the most alien thing that happens i mean it's it's mostly them just trying to survive on this foreign ship flying billions of light years away trying to get home kind of thing it's it's a really cool premise and they've got a great 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 cast ming na who's in um uh, who's in S.H.I.E.L.D. is way more interesting. She's like the head of the civilians and she's a lesbian and she's got a lover back home and like they've got these cool. stones that can let them communicate back home with people like temporarily and like, it's it's really, really interesting character drama science fiction. But um, yeah, but, but that only lasted two years. I mean, they got two full seasons of 20 and that, that was it. Um, and I, I guess the, you know, my, my last thought, and then we'll move on, is I wonder what the CW could do with only having to make, you know, 15 to 18 episodes a season as opposed to like 26 or something like that, you know? Just we'll concentrate the story. We'll never know. We'll never know. It's the problem of making a show for network TV yeah. is you got to meet that 22 episode yeah. demand. All right. So, uh, okay. So. Legends of Tomorrow, we, we, or I'm not going to say we, you had predicted at the beginning of this season that you thought this was the end. Do you still think this is the end of Legends of Tomorrow? No, it's been renewed. I oh, mean, it's, oh, it's definitely 100% coming renewed. back oh, next okay. year. Oh, yeah. All the, all the CW shows have been renewed. They were all, I think they were all renewed at, in one big announcement. Okay. Of, we're bringing back everything. Okay. Um, well, let me, let me reframe this. Do you think they have enough talent and material to make it beyond one more season? Uh, yeah, no, but oh, if really? they introduce okay. new stuff that's interesting, then yeah, sure. I mean, they've said, you know, nothing that happened this season other than sort of the ramifications of the final episode, I think is going to matter. You know, I think they're going to keep on the woman who plays Amaya Jiwe, the vixen, but they're, they've said they're introducing new characters and I'm going to assume new crew members next year and i'm kind of hoping the new blood they get will continue to infuse new energy and life into the show you know this season the bad guys were just reused characters from other shows it was malcolm merlin um damian dark 
Eobard Thawne, played by Matt Lesher, the original Eobard Thawne, and then eventually Captain Cold joins them. I hope none of them are the bad guys next year. I hope the bad guy is a new, not new, obviously they're going to take it from the comics somewhere, but a different bad guy who isn't just kind of coasting on menace he's built up in a previous show. Um, I want them to continue to go off in a completely other direction. So where to end this year? All right, so the whole second half of the season has been about the Spirit Destiny. The last episode, the bad guys get it. They recreate a bad version of reality where everything sucks. Isn't that then, what, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, isn't that what Robert Downey Jr. dismissively calls the uh, Loki staff? Does he call it the Spirit of Destiny? Glow Stick of Destiny. Oh, the Glow Stick of Destiny. <laughs> Who, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I meant to bring this in earlier. Green Arrow was influenced by Iron Man. It wasn't until no the comic book he didn't Probably. become the the hard drinking sleeping with women playboy thing. It oh, wasn't really? Batman until after the Tony Stark character was introduced. Yeah, yeah. According I'll to buy some, that. some stuff I saw. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Um. So this whole episode is about. So they don't actually get the Spear of Destiny back in the evil alternate world because the Reverse Flash drops it into a nuclear accelerator and destroys it. So instead, the legends decide to go back in time to World War One, where they lost it. And then basically there's alternate reality legends, and then the legends were already there. So two sets of them simultaneously trying to get control of the staff and depower it before the bad guys can use it. It all gets kind of confusing. It has an, a couple of awesome moments including one where Matt Lesher vibrates through Brandon Ralph's chest and rips his heart out of his body, uh, which is pretty badass. It's the alternate Earth duplicate, so we, it doesn't matter. Okay. Brandon Ralph is still alive at the end of the show, everybody. Don't worry. Um, yeah. And then later, he brings in an army of other Aobard Thons. So there's like 40 of them all reverse flashing it up all around, all around everybody. And it's pretty cool. Um, hmm. and then, uh, ultimately white canary uses the staff to basically depower itself and summon the, the speed demon. This black racer is what he's called. He's the, the speed force angel of death. Um, that's been chasing Aobard Thon the whole season, finally catches him, grabs him, Eobard Thawne dissolves. It's a pretty cool effect. Hmm. Uh, and then that that's all done. I hope that's it for Matt Lesher. I liked his portrayal. But every time you kill a guy and then he comes back, it kind of undercuts the value of the sacrifice they made to kill him the first time. Um, and so then they wipe Malk and Merlin's memory and uh, they wipe uh, uh, Damien Dark's memory and they wipe Captain Cold's memory and they put everything back where it's supposed to be everything is basically restored and they go off on their own adventures, except then they land in LA in 2017 and there are dinosaurs everywhere. So the final line is Katie Lott saying, guys, I think we broke time. <laughs> so I don't know what the next, what they're going to do next, but it certainly seems like they're going all in on the, if it sounds fun, let's try it approach. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, Oh, and Katie Cassidy shows up for a minute. Okay. Well, like it's I said, a dream sequence. I it's very Laurel. lovely. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I miss Laurel. It's, 
maybe maybe I should be saying I missed the show when it had Laurel because it was still good. Well, she'll be back next year, and I don't know if it's her or the duplicate version from Earth Two, but there will be more Katie uh, Katie Cassidy next year. So who knows? Mm-hmm. What is it about the guilt tripping in the DC universe? It doesn't seem to be as quite as prevalent in Marvel. I mean. You've got Cap who just wants to do the right thing. You know, Tony Stark does kind of get convinced, have to get convinced to do the right thing at times, but just because his head is not completely on right. Um, And then you have Thor who just is looking at, and and Doctor Strange who look at things from a cosmic perspective. Uh, Yeah, between Arrow and Flash and Batman, it's just constant feeling guilt right about everything that's going on around them is is this true in the comics as much or is this just something that's come up with the dc universe on on screen um sorry say that again just just the the, the guilt constant stuff. dealing sorry, with I guilt i lost my train of thought for a second yeah, yeah, yeah no, no it's fine just a constant I, feeling the, of guilt that these characters the new are 52 is definitely, and I will give it up to what culture for pointing this out accurately and somewhat humorously. The new 52 made everybody a lot whinier and a lot angstier. Uh, Traditionally, no guilt is not nearly as big a deal in the comics as it is as this recurring theme in uh, the CW shows. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flash is not constantly feeling guilty about whatever. I don't read green arrow, but as I understand it from what I've heard, he's not that mopey all the time. Um, so not in the late eighties stuff that I'm reading. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. And even in the modern stuff, not so much. So, you know, these people are all a little bit more confident in purpose, I guess, in the comics. They're also tend to be a little bit older, you know, Grant Gustin's flash is much younger than Barry Allen's flash feels like in the comics. Mm -hmm. And I would say Stephen Amell, you know, is like 34 arrow gets green arrow gets pretty old as the comics go on. I mean, he feels like he would be in his forties or, you know, mid forties by the time by like now, I think they made him younger for the new 52, but in the seventies and eighties and by the nineties, he definitely felt like he had gotten older. Like he was, yeah, forty five or something. Um, in the um, in the uh, Longbow Hunters uh, series by Mike Grell, um, in eighty seven, eighty eight, uh, Oliver Queen is I think forty three is what he said. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, sure. Yep, he's he's older. I mean, you could just tell. I mean, he just looks older. He's like yep. a bordering on a middle aged guy. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and by the way, yeah, and while Culture also pointed out that Grant Gustin is a much more accurate Barry Allen than uh, than Ezra Miller's portrayal so far. Oh yeah, like w- they said, the Wally w- that's more of a Wally West portrayal. They don't, and uh, they, they blame Parker. it's they blame a uh, Jeff Johns actually for wanting to make everything consistent with the new DCEU. They they say you know like. Uh, you know, Barry Allen has to be Flash now, and you know, like each of the like main characters who play these character, you know, the characters have to be the primary ones. And then they they find they, I don't know if it's fair that they blame Jeff Johns, but that you know, DC sort of eliminated you know the 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 equivalence of the Wally Wests for each of these characters. Well, it's very odd. 
a lot of new characters were introduced in the 90s in DC Comics. This would be an interesting thing to discuss somewhere else. And then Tease for comic book podcast. The- you guys are coming up. Me and Matt, we're yeah. doing a full comic book podcast. Go ahead, buddy. So a lot of the what is sometimes called bronze age, bronze age characters yeah. that DC introduced have since been relegated. They invent in, created a new Green Lantern called Kyle Rayner. And then after a massive, well-organized assault by fans of Hal Jordan, they basically brought Hal Jordan back as Green Lantern and pushed Kyle Rayner to the side. Yep. The they Tim Drake Robin has, has not been nearly as popular as uh, Dick Grayson's, who still is active, the original Robin is as Nightwing. Mm-hmm. Now Robin is basically Damian Wayne, who is Bruce Wayne's son with Talia. You know, Wally West was the Flash in the 90s, and then Barry Allen came back to life, and Wally really ceased to be a, a particularly interesting character. Connor Hawk, Green Arrow, Ollie's Queen's son was the Green Arrow in the 90s, and now it's just back to being Oliver Queen. Now, some of this is because a lot of the characters they replaced the guys from the 60s with were progressive. Kyle Rayner was a liberal artist who lived in Greenwich Village. Connor Hawk was gay, like openly gay in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so a lot of this was people who are pissed about conservative white characters like Barry Allen, who is fairly conservative, Hal Jordan, who's fairly conservative, mm-hmm. um, getting pushed aside for these new in-your-face liberal, I'm using all that in quote characters, uh, they wanted all that shit gone, and they raised a ruckus until basically they, they got their way. Mm-hmm. But it is odd that a lot of what's come out of the 90s has since been just completely forgotten which is hard for me because those were the comics that I read as a kid. So I, I don't care as much about Gr- Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan was the asshole trying to erase time because he was sad his city got destroyed by the time I was reading Green Lantern comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So just as a tease, Bizzlecast listeners, as we head out here, we're definitely going to do a comic books podcast because if you look at the greatest like dozen or so uh, comic, like most famous comic book writers from the last 30, 40 years, a lot of them kind of suck. A lot of them have a lot of problems. Um, you know, not as writers, but as people, yeah. they're kind of eh. like I, you know. I've been learning about Steve Ditko recently that he was a big Ayn Rand guy and he was all about objectivism and was putting all sorts of Randian stuff into his Spider-Man comics. And that Stephen Strange oh. is actually like you know kind of an anti-progressive character and blah 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 and uh it's it's tough even brian michael bendis who i've praised constantly because of jessica jones who's involved with the you know miles morales latino black re-envisioning of spider-man has had some questionable comments um it's sometimes hard to separate you know uh, some of the criticisms from the reality but um for example alan um Watchman guy. Um, Moore. Alan Moore. Clearly problematic individual, which we're not going to go into here. I mean, you know, he's... He, he he already w- had been accused of uh, of dealing with women in a certain way, and his more recent comics have not done anything to assuage the situation um, uh, in how he talks about it or doesn't talk about it. So you guys will have to stay tuned for that. Um, I, I don't really have anything to add, man. Uh, what, how, what, how do you want to end this one? Send the people out. 
Uh, let's send them out with a battle. Let's send them out with Walking Dead, oh, which had its yes. uh, season finale. Also, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. came back. Yeah. Okay. I, I said at the end of the last arc, the LMD arc, that the last episode was one of the best the show's ever done, but that still wasn't really enough to make me like begging for more Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. And lo and behold, when it came back, I found myself just as mentally checked out. I, I think it was well done. But it's hard to care about something that's going on in a fake world because they're in this massive computer-generated hallucination, mm. which does actually feel like a pretty comic booky plot. But it's just I I just don't care. And the fact that Hydra is in charge in this fake computer-programmed world, mm-hmm. I don't care. I, I it's just it's a fake world. Why should I care what's going on in it? Except in that it's a little more dangerous for you know Gemma and sky but i just don't care so i mean just just a quick tease uh to the listeners i think marvel has has peaked and i don't know how long it's going to be on the way down but i i I was going to do a podcast matt about a short quickie about how i don't think guardians of the galaxy is going to live up to expectations and that's not me being a hater because i actually love that movie and it was one movie that i loved more on repeat viewings love guardians of the galaxy but the hype machine with marvel and the rollout and the you know the commercial tie-ins and so forth have just gotten so intense i i just don't know if anything can live up to what they've been promising you know from years past um and you know and i think that shield is just is almost like a casual casualty on the side of of what's going on like i just don't think they even care i i don't think they care about shield but they are look i think marvel is on a slightly downward trajectory now but then i think it's going to stabilize at a slightly lower but still fairly successful place we have more tv coming we not just netflix stuff we have Cloak and Dagger coming to free form. They are going forward with the Inhumans TV show that is still happening that hasn't caved in on itself movie. despite everything we thought might happen. And then wait, what wait, we've TV got, show or movie? Well, it's like going to be a movie that then becomes oh, a TV God. show. Um, uh, by the way, I wanted to add. I, I it's like the pie little show yeah. in theaters, and then it's so, go watch the TV show. So remember all the Chloe Bennett comments that we talk about about how mad she is that this isn't part of the MCU right. proper. Yeah. Well, when I was researching Willa Holland, there were some interesting interviews from her, her last summer before Arrow Season 5 aired about how upset she was that the CW universe was being completely kept separate from the DCEU. Like, almost exactly as if Chloe Bennett was saying it. So, you That's know, interesting. they're alienating young, attractive, talented, charismatic actors and actresses because of this whole process. And it's going to come back to bite them, both DC and Marvel, I think. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, I mean, Chloe Bennett is completely right. Willa Holland, there's merits to her argument, but I think Warner Brothers has been much more clear, these are meant to be different things. And, I mean, I think if you look objectively, I don't know why Willa Holland wants her thing that people still like to be at all associated with this train wreck of a, of a movie franchise. I mean, nobody is pretending that Arrow and Grant Gustin Flash are part of the DCEU. Marvel is pretending that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. matters to the Marvel Cinematic Universe mm-hmm. when it obviously doesn't. My, um, my, my guess is, my guess is, because we knew, we knew that Arrow wasn't going to show up in the DCEU. Right. You know, she might be buddies with Grant Gustin, who's like her exact age, and who they've done a lot of episodes together. 
Could be. Like, you know, like I would be, you know, the fact that they're copying the exact uniform, you know, the outfit of the Flash and putting it on Ezra Miller instead of Grant Gustin in the movies, you know, that she would be upset about that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing. Well, there's a video of they announced the Ezra Miller signing the same day that the numbers came out for the second episode ever of the flash, which is an important number because anybody can watch a pilot, but will people come back a week later? Right. And Stephen Amell was giving a interview and they asked him about Ezra Miller. And he said, I think they could have really handled this differently in not announcing the guy who isn't Grant Gustin on the same day. Grant Gustin finds out if his show is going to be viable for the future. I mean, he was, you know, he later said, I've had conversations with Jeff Johns and all the conversations are great, but he has been kind of angry at times also with specifically that casting. Um, you know, nobody's talking about putting another green arrow in the DCEU, so he he feels safe. But yeah, Ezra I mean, Miller's signing yeah. was a little bit of a slap in the face to Grant Gustin. I mean, th- um, this is going to be just a typical case of the Bizzle piling on something that he loves but you cannot tell me that there was no scenario that they could make bliss melissa benoist work in a movie setting as supergirl they definitely could have made that happen or at least tried. oh they absolutely could have yeah she's she's as movie ready as anybody in the cw verse the Arrowverse. sure I, i and i mean i have extreme doubts that man of steel 2 will ever happen um but i could be wrong you know if i don't think justice league makes any i mean if justice league makes any money if it makes 850 million they're gonna keep going with this stupid franchise so i have a hard time thinking supergirl is gonna show up in man of steel 2 but if they did that yeah it should be melissa benoist who who could be better than her um some bigger name that's not going to be as good as she is i know i agree with you 100 percent um it's just too so it's anyway too sad. Agents of Shield, just i just don't because, care yeah no one cares it's just too bad because in a different universe melissa benoist and brandon routh as superman with a better script and a better director and a better studio could actually be really great together those two i think but whatever probably i mean yeah. i think marvel though once Guardians comes out, which I think is still going to be good, oh, even yeah. if it's not as good as everybody it's maybe be good. wants. It's going to make over a billion dollars. I just don't, I, I quite can't possibly, possibly live I up to expectations. I think Thor Ragnarok is going to go down as the best Thor movie. Yes, yes. Which I don't think, I know you like the first, nobody likes the second. No, I don't think it has to be that be to be the best Thor ever. I think, and then I, think I still the, remain very hopeful for Black Panther. I, know, I mean, I'm very the hopeful. Cast and the yes. creator, I, I think a year from now, yeah. we're going to have a much higher opinion of where, or, 14 months from now, yeah. we're going to have a much higher opinion of where Marvel Studios yeah. is at. No, I think from Guardians in a m- couple weeks to Spider-Man, which I don't care about, but it's going to be f- good and people are going to say, to Thor, which is going to be great, to Black Panther, which is going to be great, possibly to even Avengers, uh, Infinity War Part 1 or whatever they're calling it. Yeah, I think the next year is going to be great for Marvel. I just don't know what they're going to do after that. And as you pointed out, and as Movie Bob Count their money. points out, yeah, well, but as you and, <laughs> as you and Movie Bob have pointed out, you know, they're test they're testing all of these minority and female characters in the comics that they're going to then bring to the big screen to replace the main characters, right? And, and that could work, but th- at some point they're going to have to take the 
leashes off of uh, of the the creative people behind these uh, things and, and i think especially thor with taika waititi um you know taika waititi be, being a minority and sort of an outside candidate and right. uh and black panther will be a real test case as to whether they're allowed to see through their creative visions and not just right. paint by numbers as joss whedon has sort of claimed was the case with you know the second avengers movie and so forth mm-hmm. you know um I, I, I just don't know. I don't know. We'll have to say. Cool. All right. So let's talk Walking Dead real yes, quick and then yeah. wrap it up. Yeah. Walking Dead season finale. Whole season has been building towards a war between Rick Sheriff Rick Grimes and his friends versus Negan and the Saviors. Who's English, by the way, isn't he? Yeah, Andrew yeah. Lincoln is English. Yeah. Uh, he's in uh, Love Actually. I want to say. I'm pretty sure that's the one. Mm. One of those British love romantic comedies he's considered an outside uh bond candidate i believe i could see it i mean they'd have to you have to i I have a hard time imagining andrew lincoln as not rick grimes where he's desperate and he's got a beard and he doesn't look very bondy but if they made him look suave sure he could pull it off well you know tom Selleck was originally going to be batman before michael keaton and he had the mustache so oh yeah I I have an easier time imagining Tom Selleck as Batman than I have than Rick Grimes or Andrew Lincoln as uh, Bond, but it's them versus Her- uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Negan and the Saviors. We think there's going to be a big bloodbath battle where all of the little communities Rick has been rallying together are going to come and they're just going to wipe the Saviors out. We get a battle, we don't get that. I think some of that is because there is only one major villain left in the comics up to this point after Negan, and that's Alpha and the Whisperers. And I don't think they want to pull that trigger quite yet. And I also think it takes so long to deal with the saviors in the comics that they don't really think it would be, it would have been too rushed to say, Oh, we wrapped all this shit up in a year. So it's going to be a two year war with them. Um, there are still some really cool moments in this episode. Most notably, one of the uh, side characters, King Ezekiel, he has a tiger, CGI of course, named Shiva. And this tiger comes out of nowhere and just starts eating the face off one of the bad guys. I mean, they're about to sh- like shoot Rick's kid and bat- break Rick's hands and they've got all these guns trained. And then this fucking tiger leaps out of the side of the screen tackles this guy and just starts eating his face and it's it's pretty fucking awesome to be honest um and sasha one of the major characters uh who's been in a pretty dark place all season finally opts to kind of kill herself but that turns her into a zombie and so she's able to get a drop on negan because of that and that gives the good guys the chance they need to kind of turn the tables so overall pretty satisfying episode i think not going to be as good as next season when I think there is going to be a lot of battling and next season's finale will be righteous, but it's still a heck of a lot better than last year where they've been setting up all season that Negan is going to show up and beat somebody to death with a bat. And then when he picks the person, he points his bat at the camera and hits the camera over the head and you see blood dripping. So you have to wait for a year to find out who it was Negan actually killed. So that was just trolling bullshit. It, this was much better than that. Hmm. 
All right. Well, uh, I wish I had anything to say about that. (laughs) It sounds good. But what I've seen online about Walking Dead, people seem pretty optimistic about the future. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. I mean, it's definitely coming back and it's pretty, pretty good. Mm hmm. So, um, we are now into By April. the way, it was, yeah. sorry, it, yeah. it did take them, basically they introduced Negan in episode, issue 97, and it wasn't until issue 125 or 6, 26, that they wrapped up the war. So that is over a year of, that's actually almost two years of comics, because um, mm-hmm. it, it's 97 plus 24, mm-hmm. yeah, 122. It was over two years they were at war with the Saviors, so yeah. Mm-hmm. They couldn't do this in one season. They would have to do it over two seasons. So here's a way maybe we should end shows in the future. Um, okay. It is now very early in the morning on April 8th. <laughs> um, and uh, some interesting people were born today. I'll give happy birthday wishes to Robin Wright, to cool. Patricia Arquette, to cool. Emma Caulfield from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who's also yep. a Will Wheaton person, to Dean... Dean Norris uh, from Breaking Bad. Oh, spectacular. yeah. Spectacular. And Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers as Hank is spectacular. And of course, I will not forget ever, I've got her picture hand signed by her on my wall. I will never lose this. Katie Sackoff turns 37 today. Oh, cool. Portland, Oregon. Battlestar Galactica. Longmire. Oculus. Million other things. God bless. Some great actors and actresses out there. So uh, this was sort of a weird week, but we've got some really interesting shows coming up. Um, I think we should do men, and then we'll sign off. We should do an American Gods preview at some point before okay. the show, I think. Because um, I feel like this is one of those shows that other people are going to watch and, and get on, you know, <laughs> sort of get on the bandwagon with. We'd be like, we knew this show was going to be good kind of thing. Um, so that would be fun. Um, to do uh, anything else you want to share with the Bizzlecast listeners? Um, no, I think that's uh, just about it. But in a tie into Netflix, yes, Cosimo de Medici was also born today on uh, April 10th, uh, and he was the first of the Medici family. Yes. So there you go. Well, that's that's <laughs> who Richard Madden plays is Cosimo de Medici. Well, there you go. Cool. Yeah. So go watch uh, yeah. in honor of his birthday. Go watch yes. the, Medici's, the Medici's, which I'll get awesome. to. Yeah. sometime this spring or summer i promise awesome awesome man well thank you so much thank you bizzlecast listeners get uh look for some more bizzlecast podcasts coming up this week and we appreciate you listening and we are out